pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan, to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, 
and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. All right, and we're back to another adventure here on Southern Sense, live on Blog Talk Radio, WCETFM out of Columbia, South Carolina, up on SHR Media also, and iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chickadee. Howdy, you bellas. Along with my great co-host and so patient a gentleman, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing just great. Um, Before we started the show, I was just sitting here daydreaming and wondering what it would be like if um, 63 million Trump supporters showed up in D.C. I think it would shake... um, (laughs) The liberals to their core to have so many people there, you know, but it's nice to dream, you know, nice to have fantasies. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, we've got ourselves a bunch of great guests on. Um, if you're looking at the lineup, Liz Harrington was supposed to be with us uh, last minute. She had to have something else going on. So instead, we're going to have Paris Denard. Uh, he's as a GOP spokesperson. Uh, but we're going to start off with Shane Hazel. Uh, U.S. Marine veteran. Uh, he ran for Congress out of Georgia and didn't get the seat, but now he's challenging uh, David Perdue for the Senate seat out of Georgia. He's going to start the show with us, and then we're going to have a very special guest. I don't know if you guys have heard about when Mayor de Blasio painted the Black Lives Matter in the middle of the street in front of the Trump uh, Towers. Um, well, what Scott Lope I'm going to mispronounce his name, Lobedo uh, did, was because he's an artist, he painted a blue line in front of an NYPD police precinct. <laughs> so he gets served with the cease and desist order because he didn't have a permit to paint this line. Uh, well, oh, he challenged uh, all about that and said, well, did Mayor de Blasio have a permit to paint Black Lives Matter down the middle of the street? I know he didn't. So we're going to have a lot of fun with him. He's going to be on with us for a full hour at the second hour of the show. Then we're going to have Paris Denard join us as the RNC spokesman. And then from uh, Heritage Foundation, Jared Stepman is going to come back and join us again. So I want to welcome everyone that is listening uh, up on Facebook. we got the chat open over there, as well as here on Blog Talk Radio. So we've got a lot to do and a lot to talk about, Curtis. Yes, we do, and there's a lot out there to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Now, before I do the dedication, I want to mention to everyone that today is the National Purple Heart Day, and this is an op-ed that was rich, written by Richie Lane and has been carried up on um, MSNBC as well as uh, Fox News, and Richie has such wonderful words, and I just want to say read what he wrote, uh, because I think it's so poignant today. And he writes, patriotism, service, sacrifice. For many Americans, these words evoke a sense of pride that makes us think of parades, waving flags, and fireworks. They also call to mind our founding ideals of life, 
liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This creed is the lifeblood of our nation and its people, even during times when the daily newscast might make that seem uncertain. Since the days of the revolution, in the fields of Lexington and Concord, Americans have always answered the call to serve and protect not only our shores, but people the world over from evils of terrorism, Nazism, and communism. The greatest generation, now dwindling in numbers, saved the world from oppression. More recently, brave men and women carried our nation's flag through the jungles of Vietnam, across the sands of Iraq, and atop the mountains of Afghanistan. Throughout these times, more than 1.8 million Americans have shed blood or lost their lives at the hands of enemies of freedom. For their scars and sacrifice, these brave Americans have been recognized with a single recognition designed in the shape of a heart, colored purple, and emblazoned with the likeness of America's most famous soldier, General George Washington. These Purple Heart heroes epitomize all that makes our country great. Each one has been willing to lay down their life for friends, family, community, and country. They represent the true cross of freedom. Their selfless service is what we honor each year on National Purple Heart Day, August 7th. Originally conceived by General Washington on August 7th, 1782, at his headquarters in Newburgh, New York, as a badge for military merit. The citation was bestowed upon recipients who performed a singular meritorious action. In February 1932, on the 200th anniversary of Washington's birth, the award was recast in its modern form as the Purple Heart Medal. The criteria for presentation was also updated to recognize a service member who was injured by any enemy or to be presented posthumously to the next of kin of those who are killed in action. For Purple Heart recipients and all who serve in our armed forces, the award remains unique. It is the one award no one ever wants to receive, but perhaps is no prouder to wear if earned. It is worn humbly and proudly by so many, not because it's a symbol of their own sacrifice, but a testament to the service of those who did not make it home, and all those who bear the physical and emotional scars of war, a reminder that they did not fight and die in vain. Today, our country seems more divided than any point in generations, whether in our political discourse, online, or even in our streets. Our long-held belief of American exceptionalism, that commitment to freedom and that sense of loyalty to God and country seems to be faded. The National Purple Heart Day, as our nation faces the coronavirus pandemic and civil unrest, our nation can look to our Purple Heart recipients as symbols of our strength, courage, and resiliency as a nation. Our Purple Heart recipients offer us an opportunity to unite. They represent all that is truly special about our country. We watched each other's backs. We won. We love one another. We are truly brothers and sisters in arms. That's what America is all about. Today, 
We remember all those who represent the true cost of freedom. We honor all those who have left our shores never to return, as well as those who came back with scars that often never heal. Today, salute our Purple Heart heroes. When our nation asked, who shall we send? They responded, send me. They are deserving of so much more than our praise. They are deserving of our respect, our gratitude, and most importantly, our commitment to honor them by working together to keeping our nation, the United States of America. That said, for those that listen to our show, we know we start off each and every show with the dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Officer David Kellywood of the White Mountain Apache Tribal Police Department. His end of watch was Monday, February 17th of 2020. And it reads, this is from AZ Central. White Mountain Apache Police Officer David Kellywood, 26, was shot and killed on Monday, February 17th of this year when he responded to a call near the Honda Resort and Casino in Pine Top, according to the Navajo County Sheriff's Office. We lost a wonderful young man in the line of duty, said Navajo County Sheriff David Klaus. Kelly Wood had served with the White Mountain Apache Police Department for about nine months and leaves behind a wife and two children, said Jerry Gloshe Jr., chief of staff of the White Mountain Apache Tribe. Gloshe said that Kelly Wood was an energetic young man who was proud to be in the field of law enforcement. Today is a sad day for the entire White Mountain Apache tribe, he added. It hurts to lose someone who is a protector of his family. Before joining the White Mountain Apache police, Kelly Wood was a detention officer for the Navajo County Sheriff's Office, Klaus said. The incident occurred around 1 a.m., when the White Mountain Apache Police Department responded to reports of shots fired near the casino, officials said during a news conference. The responding officer located a man who immediately engaged in a violent physical altercation with the officer, during which the officer was shot, said Bryant Swante, the chief deputy of the Navajo County Sheriff's Office. The man fled a short distance after the altercation, and then a second officer shot and killed the man, Swante said during the press conference. No other people were injured, and there were no other suspects, he added. Kelly Wood's wife, Camilla Kellywood, posted on Facebook, My husband died doing what he loved. My heart is so broken. Gwendina Lee Gatewood, the chairman of the White Mountain Apache tribe, declared in a fair... Facebook post a day of mourning in remembrance of the officer. She also authorized flags to be flown at half-staff until the day after his funeral. The people of the White Mountain Apache Tribe, the White River Police Department, officers, staff, and those who associated with officer are deeply affected by this tragic loss, she said. We grieve with his loved ones to support this community, to pray for all those who suffer loss, and try to find some meaning amidst our sorrow. 
Arizona Governor Doug Ducey ordered flags at all state buildings to have staff until February 18th. This heartbreaking loss is another reminder of the danger our law enforcement officers face every day to keep others safe, Ducey said in a press release. Our prayers are with Officer Kelly Wood's wife, children, and loved ones, as well as with the White Mountain Apache tribe. Kelly Wood is the first officer to be killed in the line of duty in Arizona since Maricopa County Sheriff's Detention Officer Gene Lee died after he suffered a severe head injury when attacked by an inmate on October 29th at Lower Buckeye Jail in Phoenix. He is also the first officer to be killed by gunfire in the line of duty in Arizona since 2018, when Deputy U.S. Marshal Chase White was shot and killed November 29th in Tucson while trying to arrest Ryan Schlesinger. Support and condolences have poured in over social media for the family and the White Mountain Apache community from indigenous leaders and fellow police agencies across the state and country. White Mountain Apache Councilman Gerald Altaha expressed his condolences for the family and Kellywood in a post on Facebook. David was a fine officer and a genuine man of character, he said, who represents District 2 in the Fort Apache Indian Reservation. His loyalty and dedication and devotion to the public safety of the Fort Apache Indian Reservation will always be remembered. The Navajo Nation President and Vice President shared their condolences on a Facebook post, saying he was a protector of his family, communities. To his wife and children, we pray for strength and comfort. Governor of the Gila River Indian Community, Stephen Rowe Lewis, also shared his condolences. Our brave tribal law enforcement officers sometimes give all to keep all tribal communities safe. Prayers are with the officer's family and the entire White Mountain Apache tribe, Lewis said in a Facebook post. And as I close this dedication, I add, Officer Kellywood, Shield P204, stand down, officer. You are end of tour. Job well done. Rest easy now. Today's show is dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders, either law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency workers. And we also dedicate them on this Purple Heart Memorial Day to the all brave men and women that served in our military in defense of this nation and others around the world, from the birth of this nation through today and into its fantastic future. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Harrington, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one.
Are back. You're listening to Southern Sense here on Love Talk Radio, SHR Media, up on now, WCET FM out of Columbia, South Carolina, iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, YouTube, all the heck with it. Go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chickadee, Annie, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Curtis, we're waiting for Shane Hayes to call it about another five minutes or so, but... um I got I to gotta admit, I, I was coming up with slogans last night, listening to Joe Biden's gaffes. <laughs> and I have to admit, I have to admit, I, I think I'm going to propose this to uh, Paris Denard when we get him on. Um, Joe Biden, the gift that keeps on giving. Well, Joe Biden, wait, wait, how did I put this now? Oh, heck, now I forgot how I did this. Oh, shoot. Brain fart, brain fart. <laughs> warning. Um, uh, Joe Biden. Recruiting blacks to the Republican Party one gap at a time. How do you like that? I love it. <laughs> Maybe we'll get some diversity then. <laughs> that guy just never fails, you know, to amaze me. Um, I guess the rest of us too. And the Democrats just don't don't know how to handle this guy other than to keep him, you know, on lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, the last several days there have been editorial after editorial uh, calling for him to not debate President Trump. And President Trump, on the other hand, is pushing back and saying, well, let's not just do three debates. Let's do four of them. Let's get four of them in before the election. (laughs) 
So instead of saying, oh, yeah, well, all right, well, yeah. maybe you got a little problem there, but he's, he's, he's like pushing the envelope. <laughs> you got to love it. Well, you know, he has a the point, deal. too. Trump has a point because, I mean, these debates are scheduled to begin, like, at the end of September, and we're already having primaries in a lot of states. And, you know, I think he should keep hammering at it, you know, at the Democrats. You know, why are you guys, you know, keeping um, Biden on lockdown? You know, let him come face me mano y mano, you know. You know, appeal to his man <laughs> or something, if he remembers, if he still has one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just don't, don't hold anything back here, Curtis. <laughs> don't hold anything back. <laughs> but he needs to come out, though, and let us know really how bad his situation is, you know, his cognitive, you know, capabilities or the lack of them. They can't, I mean, they can't just keep this guy, you know, on the download and not, you know, um, expect that we will find out eventually. But that's yeah, what they're that's doing. That's a scary thought because, you know, if, if we don't see exactly how healthy he is and you know, what we're getting as a president, how can you make an informed decision to vote? You can't. And you they don't care about that. Do that. They just want to put a body no. in there so um, they can, you know, he could be a puppet. And Bernie, he'll run the show. Bernie and AOC, they'd be the puppeteers. What a thought. What a thought. Man, that, that is a scary thought. But, you know, the other thing is is that he's promising to have um, a vice president pick by the end of this week. I guarantee you that's not going to happen. I don't see that happening. You think so? Do you? I um not by the end of this week, be, but maybe next week. I think by by Monday he'll he'll do something. I guess. Yeah. I, I, I really don't know, I don't know what's the best choice for him because all of these women, and I, I say women because. It's expected of him to select a a, women, a woman, especially one that's a minority. Um, they all have baggage, every single one of them, that he's considering. So I just don't know. Oh, and have you seen Camilla Harris, what her face looks like? What did she do to it? I mean, a massive bad Botox. Holy cow, she looks like the Joker. <laughs> Seriously, if you took a look at her. It's really scary looking. But each one he picks, he takes Susan Rice, all you have to do is shout Benghazi. He takes Camilla Harris, all you have to do is pray before everyone her record as the attorney general over there and how many more blacks were incarcerated under her tenure or her attacks on Joe Biden in the vice president, the presidential debates with the Democratic Party going into the primary. You can hit her one after another, a whole mess of things. Every last one he's picking got, has tremendous baggage attached to them. Well, I know who their fantasy VP is, and that would be Michelle Obama. They're probably still trying to negotiate with her, you know, and say, look, but well, I thought he wanted well, a if you have to disqualify Biden, then you become the first female black president. 
something you you know. I thought he wanted to. Well, Curtis, I thought he wanted to take a female as vice president. You, you sure about Michelle Obama? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I've, so I've heard rumors. Yeah, I've heard <laughs> all kind of rumors about Michelle's origin. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, there. Only Obama. Watch the phones go off the hook. (laughs) Watch the phones go off the hook. (laughs) Oh my goodness! Oh jeez! What's the worst that can happen? You could get banned Twitter and Facebook. (laughs) Something they do all the time. Well, uh, I do believe this is our next guest. Let's open up the mic on this. Good afternoon. This is Southern Friends. I'm your hostess, Annie, the Radio Chick. Am I talking to Shane? Hey, this is Shane. How are you guys? Hi, Shane. How are you doing today? That's Welcome to the show. Shane Hazel, running for Senate out of the state of Georgia, my neighbor. Hey, thank you guys for having me on. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. Oh, it is our pleasure. It is our pleasure. Now, you're, you're going up against David Perdue, who is the incumbent, and John Ossoff. Now, if John Ossoff ever had the chance of winning an election, I'd be lasting my ass off. <laughs> really. <laughs> <laughs> Just He's not the most name. inspiring that's, politician, that's, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but can you imagine the, 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 the teasing that poor guy must have had going through school <laughs> with a last name like that? I guess you could have got somewhere along the way. <laughs> oh, man. So what made you decide, because you tried to run for Congress, and unfortunately you didn't make it through, but what made you decide to run uh, now for the Senate? So, yeah, right right now, um, David Perdue, uh, as, as the incumbent down here, has a, a 57% constitutional voting record, um, which I, it, it is not anything close to being conservative. Republican or and definitely not constitutional. In fact, there's only about five guys in all of Congress. Uh, so five out of 535 members that actually have an A constitutional voting record. I just think we, we need, you know, more men and women in those positions uh, that will honor their oath first and foremost, and that actually understand, know, and can teach um, from the constitution, you know, that, uh, the, the powers of the federal government are supposed to be outward looking in terms of being a, a foreign emissary for the people to the rest of the world in terms of war, peace, negotiation, and foreign commerce. So that David Perdue, you know, he, he's, he's kind of been part of the in club for a while. He, unfortunately he's close to Trump and, you know, I don't know that, you know, Trump understands just, you know, what a, what a rotten politician he is, but, you know, this is the same guy that will talk about, you know, how he loves the people and small businesses in one breath, uh, but then will turn around and, and bail out the uh, the banks and the corporations in the next, right? And so, that, we're we're in a weird time, obviously here in 2020, but it's uh, it's a golden opportunity to introduce people to the real, you know, fundamental principles of uh, peace and liberty and free markets, so that we can, ex- you know, expand liberty in a time where I think. This country is uh, is really headed, and I'm optimistic about it. Well, you don't normally see anyone get elected to the Senate uh, from the Libertarian Party. Uh, we have Joe <laughs> Lieberman. Or any of Congress. I, I, the only one I can really think of is Joe Lieberman. 
Now, Justin Amash switched parties when he was already in office. Right. Um, but Lieberman actually did get elected as a libertarian. Yeah, it's, it's been a long time, and whether libertarian or independent, I think he may have been. Um, but I'd have to go back and check. Yeah, there, you know, the the chances are small. But here's the thing: is you know, when you look back through history, uh, you know, in the 1770s, early 1770s, people would have probably told you you were crazy if you thought you were going to be more free by 1776. People would have thought you were crazy if you told them that they were going to be more free in 1860 and then five years later, they were more free. Same thing with, you know, women's suffrage in in 1919, same with the civil rights act in in 1963, the same with, you know, uh, equality in marriage in, in 2015, like this, this happens and it happens quick. And right now we are going through some dramatic change. And I mean, you know, what gave birth to the Republican party in the 1860s um, will, you know, probably be doing the same thing here because in terms of the duopoly, the, the, you know, the the same two party system that's been around since the 1860s, we're, we're in this mess. And a lot of people will argue that Democrats and Republicans are are very different when in the long run, since I've been voting, I see more war, I see more spending, I see more debt and I see less freedom from all of them. And we've had super majorities in, in both of those and none of them have really scaled that government in our lifetime. Um, you know, and, and so I, I think, given the opportunity outside of the, you know, the government indoctrination camps that we have now uh, that are shutting down all over the place, which is a, is a great thing, honestly, um, we're, we're going to have people exposed to the ideas of real liberty and real peace. You know, the, the, the great writers of the anti-federalists, uh, guys like uh, Rothbard and Mises in terms of uh, Austrian theory of economics, like we've got a real potential to, to go one of two ways. And I think a lot of people are headed towards freedom right now. They, they see it uh, on both sides and they know that they've been absolutely lied to uh, by the duopoly, the media and the bureaucrats that are out there. Well, it's funny because we're finding upsets in a lot of these primaries, people that you wouldn't think would be able to get the nomination and knocking out steady incumbents. And a lot of them put themselves down more as a conservative or libertarian, but they still are running on the Republican ticket. Uh, We do have a caller. Let me bring this one caller in on the line. And you are on the air live with Southern Sense. I'm your hostess. Annie Ubellis, and our guest is Shane Hazel, running for con- for Senate out of Georgia. To whom am I speaking? My name is Nathan in Orlando. Um, what made Hi, me got, 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 got yes, I, well, I got a comment, um, and and I, I don't want to offend anybody. That's not my intention. But when I hear someone, and I don't know your 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 guest, but when I hear someone say, you know, so-and-so doesn't know the Constitution, and I appreciate him keeping up with the records, but I'm finding that I don't know anybody in office anywhere that knows the Constitution. They know what we go, what, what we believe. They know our experience in history. But, um, you know, one of the biggest things, and I'm going to use this one as an example because right now we have, you know, the, the, the racial issue has come back up. And, and, you know, like in a day earlier in, li- in our lives, in our history, I was a little boy during this time, where, where, and I, I missed it because my parents uh, uh, guarded me from it. But 
you know, you got a, a government policy that says you can use this bathroom and this water fountain, and this person has to use that systemic, as they say, systemic uh, uh, racialism for, as a, a government policy. Something else we have, and I wish the, the guests would hear me on this, another systemic issue we got in our po- politics is uh, um, congressional districts. In the Constitution, there is the con- Congress are sent to uh, office based on the population. That means every congressman in my state, Florida, can all live in the same house here in Florida. They, they, but what we do is we got congressional districts that, that are mapped out on the map with borders that snakes across over on this side of the railroad tracks and at this part of this section of suburbia. And, and, and that, too, has created a, a systemic Racial, economic, social, you name moral, whatever other kind of stuff you want to put in there, that's divided us. And I think that we need to – this is just one of uh, uh, many issues that's on my mind. Uh, we need to say to Congress, listen, you don't go back. And I'll give you a good example of how this works. Here in Florida, Dan, uh, 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 Colonel Allen West ran for Congress. He goes up there. And and the Republicans don't like some of the stuff he's saying. He's really pushing the line, especially on his teachings against the Muslims and stuff like that, on Islam, rather. And and what the Republicans did is they said, well, we're going to redistrict his 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 district. And then in the next election, he was within 500 points, and, and, and he couldn't get reelected. They they changed it to shut him out. And and it and it took you know the the borders on the map went over here across these railroad tracks so that we know how it's going to turn out. All right, Nathan. Nathan, what is the specific question you would like Shane to answer? I I just ask it. Will you can he promote getting away from congressional districts because it's based on numbers, not districts? All right, Shane. I'll follow that up. Isn't that a state issue, not a federal issue? It's a federal so, issue. So, yeah. So the the federal office is, is dictated in terms of elections for the Constitution. The elections for the executive and the Congress are laid out in Articles One and Articles Two. Usually, Article One Point One and Article Two Point One. So when when we look at how it's districted, I agree that gerrymandering, you know, if that's your point is gerrymandering is is an awful thing. And you have people who are candidates who are running in districts where they don't live. That is also one of those things that I think should uh, be changed. Um, But here's the, here's the crux of the whole thing is the only way that you can change the constitution is through an article five amendment. And a lot of people have misconstrued this over the years where people think that simple legislation can can uh, change the Constitution, which is not true. They, they think that uh, Congress can abdicate power to the executive uh, or to the court. That's also untrue. The, the fact that they think that an executive order outside of the very limited executive powers can change the Constitution is untrue, and that a court opinion, not a ruling, can also change the Constitution, which is also untrue. The only way to do it is through an Article 5 amendment where you have two-thirds of the House and the Senate that agree, or you have two-thirds of the states that have passed an amendment. That is the only way to change the Constitution. Okay. I'm not talking about changing the Constitution. I'm talking about living by it. And the Article 1 that you quoted, it says Congress, this is a federal Constitution, a federal Congress, and federal 
federal uh, races. It says Congress shall prescribe law, and then in the amendments and the Bill of Rights at the end of every article, it says Congress shall enforce this with appropriate legislation. This is a federal Congress, Congress, federal constitution. The states' rights don't have this. They don't have, and and, I, right, and we yeah, always. Yeah, yeah. This is what I'm saying is we I, we I, always hear well we got to change the constitution. No, it's written. Let's live by it. Yeah, no, and, and trust me. Listen, I teach it, and I am an originalist from the anti-federal side, and so I, I understand exactly what you're saying. And yes, federal elections are separate from state elections. What they did was they put them all together to create a kind of this divisive type of nature, misunderstanding to to pit people against each other again, right? Like in in most states, you have to pay money and run on a ticket, right? In terms of being a Democrat or Republican, Libertarian, it doesn't matter. You have to pay money into the system, whereas the, the Constitution only requires that you meet an age requirement per the office you're running for. That's it. Like, and that you're a U.S. citizen. That is the only stipulations, basically, on who can run for office. And you've seen the states uh, and the parties, the duopoly, private corporate clubs, if you will, put in all these other stipulations that are extremely unconstitutional. So, yeah, definitely, I, I, I would die to live under a constitutional republic again, where we have you know, not the daily interference of the, the feds and the bureaucrats and their lobbyists and everybody else in our lives on a daily basis. It's, it's, what's, it's what corrupts markets. It's what drives up prices. It's what absolutely creates a, you know, a tyrannical government like what we're seeing here today. Uh, but Shane, my okay, well, was that your... it... oh, thank you very much, Nathan, for the call. Appreciate it. But Shane, I think I was trying yeah. to mention that it, it's up, there's nothing in the Constitution that specifies how the districts are drawn. It's up to the states to determine how. And whether or not you got one party in charge of the other that allows weird drawings of these districts. But I, there's nowhere in the Constitution. It just says that you have one representative for so many people. Right, which we've obviously gone over right anyway. Determined. Right, and, right. And, and there, and you know, and that's the thing is, if if there were, you know, if there was going to be legislation, and I, I don't think this is the most pressing issue of our day by any stretch of the imagination. Um, you know, it, if we could, you know, fix gerrymandering um, and, and read, uh, you know, read districts per, uh, you know, let's just say it like an algorithm where you don't have the, the weird borders and it's more of a, um, I don't know, it, it, it's kind of a blobular type system if, you've, if you're familiar with them in terms of describing it to the, the people. It's not these weird, you know, lines where we cut into some places and then, you know, cut out other places. I mean, it's, it's not like that at all. But, no, I, I do agree that there, there, is a, there is a big problem with that. And um, it, it's, it, it is a... It is a federal issue in terms of the federal offices, in terms of those elections, and then you obviously have it at the state level as well. And that's the more you get into politics at every level, the more you're going to find out just how corrupt all of it is and why they do it and who the players are. And, and unfortunately, you know, having gotten into politics, you know, several years ago now, I, I can tell you it is right down at your local level, which is probably where most people can actually have the most impact uh, on on their lives. And what one of the things I talk to people about all the time is if you want to really change America, go talk to your sheriff. He's an elected official, and he has more power than anybody else in your county. So if you don't like what's going on, if you don't like 
that they're prosecuting things like nonviolent crime, and you think that they should get back to things like murder, rape, assault, kidnapping, property damage, coercion, theft, and burglary, and maybe even fraud. Like, if they should get back to those types of policing instead of going out and, you know, writing tickets and, and basically looking at their average citizen as revenue, uh, revenue generation, where that or we're pulling – I don't know, moms off of uh, playgrounds and, and people off of beaches and things like that where, you know, we've become this complete police state or, or going after people who don't have masks on. Like, that's the conversations that you need to have with your local sheriff and start demanding of them. Trust me, they'll listen. You know, it doesn't take a lot to change out your, your local sheriffs. And if those guys aren't going to be the people who, you know, uphold their oath for Article 6, Section 3 of the Constitution – those are the guys you need to change out in a real hurry here in America. I mean, and, and you got access to them. Trust me. I mean, if, if you can make a phone call, you can probably get a meeting with them. And then you can organize a group within your county to go down there and have those conversations and say, this is what we're going to demand. Get people together. Get people together that are armed. Be peaceful about it. Be professional about it. But you have an opportunity to do something like that. Well, actually, i got to tell you, uh, on the 22nd of this month, I'm getting together with a bunch of other groups, and we've got a community Back the Blue rally going on. The very same spot that several weeks ago there was a Black Lives rally going on, but ours is going to be bigger, and it happens to sit in between the city police department and the county sheriff's department. The buildings are just a block apart from each other, so it's a perfect place. So, yeah, we have to let them know that the public does need law and order, and we will back you and support you. So this is what people have to yeah, do, I, say, hey, listen, we want law and order. Well, and not only – it's not that we want law and order. Like, and from, from a libertarian's perspective, listen, we're the most incarcerated country in the world, ladies and gents, and that should disturb you. You know, if, if we're going to call ourselves the, you know, the, the land of the free and home of the brave, you know, we're not living it. We have locked more nonviolent people in crimes for, you know, minor offenses of drug possession than any other country in the world. And that's not just per GDP. That's in total numbers. Now, what we should be talking about in America is scaling the government back to only real crime and defining what that real crime is. And for a lot of us, we don't accept the fact that you can go out and and, and target somebody or harass somebody or, you know, question somebody. And, and this would do a lot for everybody because right now police are under scrutiny and, you know, I think rightly so, but it's also one of those things where we have to understand that it's not, you either hate the cops or you, or you love the cops. It is, we want law enforcement to abide by the constitution first and foremost. And the real crimes that we that I mentioned earlier, earlier the, the murders, the rapes, the assaults, the kidnapping, property damage, those are what you need to focus on. Leave the average man, woman, and, and, and child, like, leave them alone. You have no business with those people unless it's to help them out on the side of the road, provide them protection for changing a tire, getting them a tow, or getting them into, you know, a safe place, removing debris, like, that's all I need on my roadway, roadways. I don't need road pirates sitting out there, you know, clocking me for, you know, two miles over the speed limit and, 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 and doing revenue generation. I, I don't need that. I, I need you guys to take care of what real, what real criminal, uh, you know, lives within our community look like. 
that's that's what we need to demand out of our you know quote unquote law enforcement, which I think we should probably get back to being peace officers instead of just people who are following orders and uh, and, and 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 telling you know going out and executing you know executive orders like here in Georgia where they'll call some people non-essential and if they go out and they assemble in groups larger than 10, you know, then they're going to have law enforcement come out, contact them, probably put them in cuffs and then put them into a squad car and take them to jail. That's a violation of the first amendment and it's a violation of your rights. And that's one of those things that we've gotten away from understanding in this country is you can't just have an executive order. And as a police officer or a sheriff's deputy, you can't just enforce those things because there's also this U S code 18 which is deprivation of rights under the color of law. You can't just go out there and do these things where it's actually a, you know, a federal crime and you can be punished up to death for it. Shane. You know, what we have is we, I'm sorry, Chris. I was just going to mention what we also have are regulations, not just executive orders, uh, masquerading as laws, but we've got regulations, federal sure. and state regulations where people can be incarcerated and fined, and some of them are fall underneath now felonies. A regulation yeah. now defines what a felony is. No, the legislature defines what the laws are, not a bureaucrat sitting in some office, you know, watching porno on the government computer. Yeah, and, and you're not wrong. And, and that's the thing is, it's not, not only do legislatures kind of define what crime is, and, and I want to, I want to make this point, uh, per Article 6, Section 2 of the Constitution, this is a, this is what people refer to as a supremacy clause. This, Article two, uh, Article six, section two of the Constitution states that any law that is not pursuant to the Constitution is notwithstanding, and that no judge or officers or any other person involved in government is bound to uphold those things. So, if something comes down the pipe that isn't pursuant to the Constitution or is directly in violation of the Constitution, there there is absolutely no force behind it, and there is there is a responsibility of anybody who has sworn an oath to defy those, you know, quote-unquote laws. Hmm, that that's almost Kurt, sound like um, in the military. That almost sounds like in the military when it comes to um, lawful orders, you know. If it's an unlawful yes, order, we're not bound to follow it. But what right. I was going to say before, there's a lot of um, things that the Democrats are thrown thrown up against um, President Trump. Yet sure. it seems as though President Trump is the only one out there, with a few exceptions, defending himself. Um, should you get to D.C., would you be one of the more vocal um senators to um, defend Trump and what, what he's doing. So I don't see a lot I of that. De- yeah, so I would suggest that nobody defend politicians, okay? And I defend principle and defend when people are in line with principle. That's, that's what we should be doing as Americans. We've been, we've been taught through government indoctrination camps, which you know a lot of people just call public schools. Uh, that we are binary human beings. If it's not this, then it's this. The propaganda machines with the media are, have reinforced that. When Trump is in line with the Constitution, I will support him. When he is out of line with the Constitution, I'm going to let him know about it. I'll do it in a very tactful way. But as a Marine combat veteran, 
I cannot and will not ever get behind anything where we are expanding our military reach overseas without an actual congressional declaration of war. Um, if he is being brought up, you know, like, and I will be the, the one of the first people to tell you, like, I'm not the Trump guy, but I'll tell you right now what he has sustained in terms of the assault on his office, uh, the, the Russia hoax, the Steele dossier, the impeachment proceedings, now COVID. This is, this is all because he has, he, he's not one of them, and I absolutely agree. Now, what, and that's what, what I'm needs talking to happen, about. I agree with you. And, and, and like I said, I will, call, I will call it as it is. I'm not going to always call it for Trump. And I'm not going to you know, always call it for the other side. And I'm, I'll tell you right now, I've never been a Democrat. I've never been a progressive. I've, I've never been on that side of the House. What I have had is had, you know, I come from the, the neoconservative background. I ran off after 9-11, joined the Marine Corps, got into force reconnaissance, and did two ridiculous deployments to Iraq where there's still no mission, right? And that's what opened my eyes is there are politicians who will use people in service to this country flippantly for 20 years without blinking it destroys their lives it destroys families lives it destroys communities lives now with president trump if he wants to end the wars i'm with him i am absolutely 100 percent. let's retrograde our troops and get them back here and start really thinking about defense as it is and not offense if he wants to go out there and go after the Federal Reserve for the fiat currency and the debt cycle that they put us into, I am all for helping him do that and restoring real monetary policy in a Austrian-type economic system where we are dealing from savings versus this Keynesian-type theory where we deal from debt-based economy. That changes the country overnight, getting back into things like agorism, making sure that the market has a choice in what they want to use as a medium of exchange, not spending more than they take in. I mean, I know that's a novel concept that Republicans used to believe in, but you know, when we look in history, they've grown the budget just as much, if not more now, than even the liberals did when they were in power. And then at the end of it, ending the bureaucracy. And I will hats off to Trump when he came into office, what was it? He, he came up with a, executive order that said any type of regulation that you're going to put on the American people, you're going to take two off the books in terms of uh, the balancing this equation. And I thought that was a, a really good step in the right direction. So getting rid of the empire that the American bureaucracy is and the deep state money that we have no idea where it's going. I mean, look, by the end of the year, ladies and gents, we're going to have $30 trillion in debt, $30 trillion in debt that is spent by the the majority, thieves, because they take that money by force and coercion, and murderers, because if you don't give them that money, then they're going to kill you. And if you don't want to go in, they're going to put you in a cage. And if you don't want to go in a cage, they're going to kill you, plus all the people that they kill overseas. I am, I'll tell you right now, this government is rotten to its core. And what I want to see out of Trump is less tweets. I want to see people locked up. I want to see people prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And if that includes people like the people who are funding Antifa, which for the life of me, I don't understand why people aren't asking the, asking the question, we know where the funding is coming from. Why aren't these people being rolled up? Why aren't, we, why aren't they in cuffs awaiting trial? We know this is happening. It's, it's, it's by design. And nobody's asking these questions in the mainstream media who have access to Trump. Why?
Um, now, now you lost me in the thought because I had, I had gone on one direction. Now I went in completely other one. Holy! Now I'm trying to remember where I left off. Curtis, bail me out. <laughs> I, well, I was more concerned about um, what's going on with the, this push by the Democrats to um, mail out ballots to everyone. And as we know, that's going to be a disaster, you know, and he seems to be the only one speaking out against it. You know, I don't hear too many people I, I, I actually tweeted, on our side of the aisle the saying, other, yeah. hey, that's a bad idea. Yeah, I, I tweeted at him the other day. Hey, President Trump, this is where the Constitution really comes in handy. If you want to change voting and how votes are counted and how the uh, electoral college is put together and how they are free to vote, the way they want to vote as a electoral college delegate, then you have to go through the Article 5 process. If, if he would go to the Constitution and cite the Constitution and lay it out that you can't go and just change the way people vote, the way that uh, you know, this, this giant push by the liberals for uh, you know, taking away the electoral college's uh, you know, power and setup, like, you can't do that. You can't, per the Constitution... You cannot change the way people's votes are tallied, and you cannot change the way the Electoral College works without an Article 5 amendment. This is, this is, he's got all this at his disposal. It's written in very plain language. It's backed up by the Federalists and the Anti-Federalist writings. And for the life of me, people around him are not saying it. And you, I, I don't care for the most part, if it's not Thomas Massey, if it's not Rand Paul, if it's not Andy Biggs or Mike Lee, or Justin Amash, the guys that have those five people have the A ratings in Congress. If it's not those five people saying something about the Constitution, nobody is saying anything about the Constitution. And when they do, it's you know it's some you know half-hearted platitude where they're placating to everybody uh, you know out there for a, you know basically a political win, and it's it's complete nonsense. Well, there's, there's one little ray of sunshine because there's that safe haven clause in federal law that I believe it's 35 days after the general election, uh, the ballots must be certified and presented to the Electoral College. Now, if all these other states want to change to mail-in ballots, there's no way for them to process them in time, which means those that are conservatives, those that are libertarians, those are Republicans, don't do the mail-in ballot. Go do absentee ballot with your state or show up at the polls. This gets me crazy because you can go to Walmart. Um, you can go out dining. You can do a heck of a lot of things out there and have you know, wear the mask and do the safe distancing. And everything's fine and Jim dandy. So why can't we vote in person? You can. And I, I think this is one of those things where it, it's another, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's the M.O. of the state. Whenever the, the state invades a country, and take it from a guy who's done it firsthand in special operations, what they do is they start the psychological operations. Psychological operations are meant to find every and all fissures between the people, lean on them, and divide them so that there is chaos. They're doing it with masks. They're doing it with vaccines. They're doing it with COVID. They're doing it with race. They're doing it with, you know, sexual preference. They've done it along every, and this is just one more thing. While we're talking about, you know, some of the, 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 the outlining parts of, you know, what's going on, 
the substance of what's really going on. You guys have just seen the largest wealth transfer in history from the people to the Federal Reserve. The, mod- the, the counterfeiting of money at that point, now that we're going to slip probably down to $30 trillion this year, the economic inflation that it is about to hit, I mean, gold did over $2,000 an ounce right now. This is what is really going to hit America right in the chops, and it is going to be astronomical inflation. We haven't even begun to see the effects of what this is going to do yet. And the, you, know, you, you may see things at the supermarket starting to cost more, but this is going to wipe out an entire generation's savings up until this point. And what we need to be looking at is what are we going to do in the very near future to get, you know, either strengthen the dollar or move to a different type of currency because the dollar as we know it is, is going to crash and burn. Well, Shane, people can find you by typing in your name, Shane Hazel. They can go to your campaign site and help you make a donation. Even a few dollars, $19, will help you on your election. Shane Hazel, you're running for uh, Senate of the state of Georgia, my neighbor. And one of these days, you and I are going to meet face-to-face. But they can also find you on the podcast you uh, do also that they can find on your website. Shane, we're going to have to have you back and have you spend more time with us. And God bless you and good luck on your campaign. Thank you so much, Ann, for having me, and uh, always happy to, to come on and, and, and talk with you guys. You right, thank care. you, Shane. We'll be talking again. All right, we've got to take All one right. quick break here, and we should be back in a minute and bring our next guest on, who is going to be a panic. So bear with us, and I'm trying this for WCETFM. Hey, late-nighters, keep up with all things WCET Radio by joining our mailing list. Just go to the bottom of the homepage and fill in the Stay Informed form. Then click the Get Latest News button. You will get everything from guest info and show info and other important station-related information. So sign up now and get a special promo offer just for email subscribers. All right, and we are back. Let me just get my little studio here to be working. And we want to welcome to the show, most of you may have heard about him back in 2006 uh, when there was a giant T representing Trump on the lawn in Staten Island, and someone burned it. And the artist who created that the very next day erected a new one. So let's welcome to the show, and I know I'm going to mess up your name, a fellow Italian, a Pazano, Scott Lobiedo. Did I say that correctly, Scott? Lobedo. Lobedo. Think of Lobedo. <laughs> Scott Lobedo. Exactly. Well, as an Italian, I say to my friends, it's Lobedo, like tomato. <laughs> well, I actually had oh, someone the other day um, say to me that I'm losing my New York dialect. I'm getting a little bit of the southern drawl in it. And I said, I can take the cop out of Brooklyn, but how are you taking the Brooklyn out of the cop? <laughs> uh, yeah, somewhere sure. along the way. 
Actually, this is my two favorite accents, so Southern, Southern and a New York uh, accent, because I spent a lot of time down there. Matter of fact, I, you know, uh, we'll get into that later on, but I travel the country every couple of years and paint flags in every single state. But my favorite, uh, my favorite two states are North and South Carolina. I spent a lot of time down there. I love it. Uh, I got a lot of fan base down there, and I am a big NASCAR fan. So, uh, you know, which doesn't make sense for a New York City uh, artist to be a NASCAR fan. But uh, that's, that's oh, my no. no, actually, actually, uh, I grew up, part of my of my childhood was out in Brentwood, and we used to sit on the front lawn and listen to Islip Speedway. And then on special occasions, my parents would take us over to Islip. And at that time, NASCAR was racing at Islip Speedway. Now, I just dated myself. Yes, you <laughs> and, did. Uh, my, <laughs> my current husband used to race there also, and he got an autograph from Richard Petty. And we've all been a huge, huge Petty fan, and we were really heartbroken to hear about Maurice Petty uh, passing away recently. But I was so yeah. thrilled when I saw you doing the painting for uh, Kyle, not Kyle, Richard Petty. And I actually Richard met Pitt. Kyle Petty. I met Kyle Petty down in Oglethorpe, Georgia, at that racetrack. NASCAR, um, uh, Austin Bill and Dawson Bill uh, was doing a NASCAR fundraiser. Um, Bill Elliott. See, I'm getting the brain fart. The gray hairs are showing up here, Scott. But I got to meet him, uh, Jimmy Spencer, and a whole mess of others. Uh, I am, a, as a matter of fact, my cousin had raced in the modified. Jamie Tomano, and now he owns a team in the NASCAR Modified. So it, it's been yes. in my blood. Good. Okay, good. As so a New York. I'm not the only, yeah, not the only uh, Yankee who's a NASCAR fan. <laughs> now, there was an article in the New Yorker uh, back in 2016 after President Trump was um, elected, and I had a laugh when I was reading the article uh, because we had gone, my tea party had gone over to a local restaurant, and that was a tea party owner, and we had election night watch. And as we were watching the returns, we were getting louder and louder. And suddenly we looked around and half the restaurant was empty. And all you saw were us. <laughs> and he didn't yeah. mind. So I read that article and I, I, I can understand where you're coming from in that section of Staten Island. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Staten Island is, uh, you know, I compare Staten Island when I do a lot of media, especially um, out of state or even out of country. Uh, people are just amazed about Staten Island and how it's in it's Staten Island is one of the five boroughs of New York City, one of the biggest cities in the world. And the rest of the city is pretty left leaning. And Staten Island is more conservative. And people ask me why. And my answer is, this is a little town in Wyoming, West Virginia, South Carolina. This is the working class. These are the cops, the firemen, the construction workers. These are those kinds of people. Okay, we're the working, we, you know, we are the majority. Staten Island has the majority of civil servants for the rest of the city. So it's that kind of element. You know, our flags are out in our front porch. We have a lot of veterans that we cater to and we take care of. And we are always getting the short end of the stick from this mayor. And as I was told by your producer to maintain my language, because it's a very uh, <laughs> calm, calm audience you have. So I am holding my, a lot of my tongue for you today. Uh, so, yeah, so that's how it is. And uh, when the election came and I knew 
that he was going to win. And I knew more than the talking heads on TV. I knew more than my big political friends here who are Republican because I had just finished a 2015 tour across America. I drove my truck and painted an American flag on the front of a veteran's post in every state to bring love to my veterans. So I spoke to the people. I heard the people. I ate with the people. I drank with the people of this country. You know, the gears, as I call them, the middle America, the gears of this magic, magic machine that we call America. So I knew what that he was going to win that election hands down against all the polls. And that's why I was that's why the New Yorker reached out to me. And so did so many other media outlets across the world, because they're like, how does this artist from New York City, how does he know that Trump is going to win? And that was my reason, because I did something no one else did. I spent time with the people of this country who were fed up with the regulations, with the political correct insanity and the, and the socialist agenda from these young misguided children coming to take over. And, I, and that's what I did with my art. And I speak with my art. And I said, this is going to happen. This man, this man who is not a politician, is going to win. And he's going to do what he says. And here we are. And he's going to win again. Well, my co-host Curtis. My co-host Curtis can attest that I, I also said Trump is going to win. There's no way Hillary was going to get into office. And it's funny because you mentioned the Norwegian TV crew. And, and when we had our watch night, the Norwegian TV crew was sitting with us asking us questions. Why were we so positive Trump was going to win? And they would ask you know, these liberal questions, and they were shocked and surprised at our, our answers, as well as our generosity <laughs> you know, and friendship to them. So I, I'm wondering if it was yeah. the same TV crew. There were two short people, and I'm, I'm short myself. One of them came up to my nose. <laughs> so. Yes, yes. I, right. I just yeah. found I'm, that interesting. I'm, I'm sort of yeah, I don't know. It was very interesting, though. I had so many people from around the country that were, plus local media, following me around because I came, I became this guru of prophecy of, you know, and plus I'm very entertaining and, uh, you know, very passionate. I guess the word is passionate. And, you know, again, even last night I did, uh, it'll be on tonight, as a matter of fact. I'm on Laura Ingram's show, which is a spectacular thing to be on. Um, tonight at 10 o'clock I'll be on you can't Laura Ingram. there either. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I did actually hold my tongue. I did say bleeping, you know. But anyway, the moral of the story is, is that, you know, it's something that they're not used to seeing. You know, the artist from New York City. I am supposed to be, you know, I was supposed to succumb to the isms of this elitist agenda, this, you know, do as I say, not as I do art world. And, you know, back in the 90s, when I went to go find my calling as an artist, I saw that's when political correctness reared its ugly head. And for me, it did. And, you know, I walked into a gallery and there was an American flag on the floor as a welcome mat beckoning you to come and wipe your feet on it. And I was amazed that the art world, okay, the, 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 the most, you know, free of people are us artists. We get to test the boundaries of the First Amendment more than any of you other people. And I think that, I, you know, how, how can artists not be the most patriotic people for that reason? To step over that line we're allowed to. That's one of the most beautiful things about this country. That's one of the reasons why I love it and promote it. 
And I saw that and I said, no, 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 no. Here's my calling. I am going to take that flag that they call oppressive and jingoist and, and, and Nazi-like. And it's, it's, it's a bad, everything is bad in America because of that flag and, and our military of baby killers. And I'm like, whoa, this is no good. I'm out. I don't want to be any part of you people. You are hypocritical. You are intolerant. Everything you preach is exactly opposite. I'm going on my own. And that's what I did. And it was like pulling teeth. Because the art world, you know, you get to make it in the art world, you got to succumb. It's just like Hollywood. If you, they find out you're a conservative Republican in Hollywood, you know what part you're getting? You're going to get the part of the stock boy in the back of the store in the X-Lax commercial. That's what happens. So <laughs> I said, well, I'm doing it on my own. And here I am 25 years later, many arrests. While I was warning people about the political correctness that was happening, no Pledge of Allegiance, and this, and the flag, and here I am, and here we are, this horrible moment well, where the monster political correctness has devoured our way of life. Well, Scott, something occurs in about 17 minutes. There is an auction that's going to end. It's in reference to a cease and desist order. Now, are you going to be able to announce who the winner is of this artwork in about 15 minutes, or you want to hold off on that? Um, I don't, cause I only have my phone, so I won't be able to be on that in this, but, oh. uh, okay. I could try, well, but I don't want to tell us the story. I, yeah, actually, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I because it's 17, there might be some wealthy person out there who wants an original Scott Lebedo, the next great artist. Uh, really quick. I painted this blue line in front of this, um, um, precinct here in Staten Island. Okay. Because in this city, the mayor painted Black Lives Matter all over in front of Trump Tower in every borough, gigantic. And again, as an artist, I think it's a pretty cool thing. Um, but uh, and I decided, okay, that's fine. You do your thing. And I'm going to paint a blue line down in front just to show support and boost the morale of a police department across America who has been demoralized. Their morale is at the bottom of their feet because of a mayor like we have. And I did not paint that line to say tit for tat for the Black Lives Matter. They have a movement. I don't agree with all the violence and the destruction, but a movement they do have and I respect. And this line was not against them. It wasn't that. It was to support the men and women in blue. And also, what does that blue line represent, ladies and gentlemen? That blue line represents the separation between anarchy, chaos, and civilization. What also does that blue line represent? It's a memorial tribute to those who we lost, who were slaughtered in the line of duty, who we don't see on the news. And then all of a sudden, well, the day after that, I hung this giant banner of our mayor over the expressway of our mayor, de Blasio, who you all probably know, with a Che Guevara shirt. And he was holding the severed head of the Statue of Liberty. Very cartoony. It wasn't like gross. And it was a huge worldwide story. And next morning, I get a letter from the city that says, cease and desist. You must remove the blue line that you painted. And I made a public statement that I had to respond to that letter. And I said, this piece of paper ain't worth the you know, the, the ink it's printed with. <laughs> this is because the mayor did not get a permit to do his street art. Did he get a letter? 
from the DOT? No, he didn't. Did the thousands of other people who destroyed our city, our public buildings with graffiti that they have on film, did they get a letter from the DOT? No, they did not. Scott Lebedo got a letter because he is a well-known conservative-leaning artist who supports his military and the men and women in blue. It was discrimination. So what I did in a nutshell, and I'm talking fast because you can go to bid on this if you want to, I created a work of art with that letter to make it worth something. I blew it up 30 inches by 40, and I did a portrait of me painting a blue line over the letter. It's beautiful. So it's up for auction all week, and we got a couple of minutes left. If you want to bid on it, scottlobato.com. It's right there. The bidding ends in a couple of minutes. I think it's up to about $6,500. Where's that money going? Wow. Not in my pocket. That money's going to the New York City Cops and Kids Boxing Clubs. What does that do? It takes little kids in bad neighborhoods off the streets and teaches them some discipline, gets them involved with, you know, to have some inspiration. To show that what the cops. So our mayor defunding the police, he defunded our police while I'm funding them. So that's the story with that. So if there's any rich people out there who want to help these cops and kids, go bid on it. you got a couple of minutes. Well, you know, I, I was reading the article about this, and, you know, the, you have a friend of 30 years that wrote a very interesting article kind of, kind of contradicting you. Uh, but the woman that appeared after you painted that blue line was a 21-year-old white woman who painted Black Lives Matter across your blue line. And this is, this is what drives me nuts. Now, I'm white. I grew up in a middle-class you know, neighborhood. We didn't have a lot of money, and I have no idea where this white privilege came from because I've never lived and experienced it. And having been a cop and worked next to all types of, of individuals, black, Hispanic, Asian, uh, gay, straight, when you put on that blue uniform, when we say blue lives matter, that means every single man and woman of all different genders, of all different nationalities, of like I said, all different. Everyone is a good individual different. So this woman said, well, what you painted pits black lives against police officers or, quote, white lives, meaning that only a police officer can be white. Well, what happened to, about that black police officer that stood in the protest line not flinching when a white privileged protester supporting black lives was spitting in his face and shouting at him and telling him he's not black? His life doesn't matter? The cops that I rode with, male, female, black, white, of all, all different races, all different original ethnicities, their lives don't matter? This, this is what gets me. We should be united, not divided. Listen, I, 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 I can't emphasize this enough. I've been doing so many interviews, and I'm bringing up things that people don't really talk about. And, you know, I see this. I'm 55 years old, okay? When I was 20 years old, okay, as your typical guy in Staten Island, New York, when I was 20, 19, 20, you know where I was? I was out chasing girls, drinking beers with my buddies down the beach. I didn't know anything about the world. Nothing I knew until way, way later in my 20s. You don't let these kids have no knowledge of what anything is about. Nothing. You don't know what anything's about. And for her to come along and tell me that my line was divisive. Meanwhile, and then, and then even the editor, my friend, who said that I straightened him out in my return letter, I said, no, sir, I am not a divider. This is not a dividing image, a work of art. This, I am a balancer. This is about balance. Yes, 
black lives do matter. And if anybody thinks otherwise, don't even come near me. I don't want to talk to you. Of course they do. But so do blue lives. And, yes, they wear it's just a uniform. They're not blue people. Like you said, they are the rainbow. It's a figure of speech. It is, a, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it was just mind-boggling. And, and, again, you know, it's just how, how can the black community not be up in arms that these young white socialist anarchists, okay, have infiltrated and are using their movement, their real, real movement, okay, for racial equality. They have a real story. And for them to let these young white anarchists just there to use their agenda to push their socialist agenda, their anti-American agenda, it boggles my mind. Because no one, you don't see anybody talk about who? George Floyd. And that hurts. That hurts. That should hurt everybody. Uh, it's it's a crazy time we're living in, and having grown up in the '60s and '70s and seeing the riots back there, this this is hands down far worse. You know, um, we are streaming live up on Facebook and is and real stream, and I have a montage of some of your artwork playing, including the De Blasio holding Lady of Liberty's severed head, and you know. When I looked at it, it was kind of reminiscent of what Kathy Griffith was trying to do in Trump. But here, Trump, she was, she was actually uh, encouraging the assassination of Trump by showing his severed head. You're showing how liberty has been severed. And so if, if they can't see yes. the difference between the two, I've, I've had, then they've got to be blind. I've had, I've had critics say, well, what's the difference? Well, you know, if you look at mine, it's a little more cartoonish, number one. And hers is like, it looks like a real bloody head. And, you know, not to judge on what is art and what is not. But then again, my Statue of Liberty head is not, doesn't have children. She doesn't have a family. You know, she's not a real person like Donald Trump has children. Or if there's anybody else's head, they have kids. You know, it's a different, if it's a different element. This just is going to show you, listen, you've been away for a while from New York. And let me tell you, I'm not. I'm here. I've been here for four generations. What's happening to the city is exactly that. This mayor is purposely severing the head of the greatest city in the world, New York City. You have no idea what it's like every day. We now have Gestapo police uh, on, on Staten Island only, okay? He hates us over here. And Staten Island that are stopping people coming over the bridge to check for COVID. This is like... Even though uh, we have no deaths, we have had no deaths in a week, in weeks, we're doing fine. It's just, it's, it's insane what is happening with the restaurants here. The inspectors are coming into the restaurants. They don't even know what they're asking for. They're reading something that doesn't even exist because this mayor is just chopping this, it's chopping it to hell. I mean, the, the school system, people want to get their kids back to school. This is America. This is the United States of America. This is the greatest city in the world. How can we not come up with a plan to get kids back to school so the parents can go back to work, so the teachers can go back and teach these children? It's insane. They're all over the place here. They, it's, it's out of control. Out of control. Yeah, it's been four months, actually a lot longer, because we knew about the virus back in January. So you can say it's a total of eight months. To have no plan in place in these communities for reopening the schools is outrageous. I mean, in my own small community here in Buford, you know, we were all set to have the schools open next week. But instead, 
couple of the staff came down with COVID, so now it's all virtual. You have to go online. But what happens to the poor families that do not have internet connection or access to smart devices? What happens to those kids that have been sitting home now for four months or more? Yeah, it's it's just, you know, I'm, right now I'm in the middle of, uh, because I am a known activist, see, I, I you know, I'll kind of get back in. I, I don't know, how much time do I have to, uh, on the show? Oh, you've got another 35 minutes, so go ahead, baby. Oh, excellent. Okay, good, 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 because i got a lot to say. I'm a New Yorker and an artist. And a <laughs> oh, I know. Um, yeah, so um, we, you know, I've been this leader to speak for people, and, you know, because unfortunately the First Amendment doesn't apply to civil servants and teachers and like that because they're not allowed to say what they feel on Facebook or social media or whatever, and it's a shame. So I am an artist, and I've always had nothing to lose. Uh, I am a fighter for the people. So I say what they are saying, and I usually do it through my artwork and uh, my activism. So I just announced uh, this week, and I will be announcing it again tonight on, uh, you'll see it on the Lower Ingram show, that I am holding the rally of all rallies at City Hall here in New York City on August 22nd because the people are finally fired up. It's always tough to get working people to come to a rally, but they are disgusted, and I heard their voices, and they are begging me to do something. So I am pumping in a stupid amount of money that I'm borrowing and getting loaned to me to hold this giant rally. I expect 10 to 20,000 New Yorkers to express their grievances. This is not a pro this rally, or it's not an anti that rally. It's not a pro president rally. It's not a pro candidate rally. This is for one thing. It's not anti BLM. It's not anti Antifa. It's just, for the people that built this city, that keep the city moving, the working people. And I'm talking black. I'm talking green people. I'm talking gay people. Everybody. I'm conservative. You know it. You don't have to like me. You're a liberal in this city and your business is getting screwed. Get your butt to this rally and express your grievances to remove the worst mayor in history. I mean, I got a lot of other names for him, but I will be very gentle because I respect your audience. <laughs> Well, I had a favorite name for David Dinkins, and I had to deal with missing a piece of manhood, <laughs> which is my uh, favorite. Right. <laughs> this mayor uh, is making Dinkins look like a god of a mayor. It is that insane. Yeah. I, I, I never thought there would be a mayor worse than David Dinkins, and then we now have de Blasio. I never thought there would be a president worse than Jimmy Carter, but now... We had Obama, and I never thought there would be someone worse than Obama, and now we see Biden running. It, 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 you know, it, it's the Peter principle in reverse. It's just, it's just crazy how, how Trump is eating away at the minds of the people who didn't think he would win. That's what it comes down to. Whether you are the big headliners on CNN or whether you're the big writers at, uh, you know, the New York Times, whatever it is, and no matter where you go, and we all know we have friends that we love dearly and family members who still are out of their mind at the word of that mentioned the word Trump. 
They can't fathom the fact that they were wrong, like the CNN, you know, re, uh, uh, head journalists and stuff. They, they, because they're the ones that think they know everything. They were wrong, and they cannot face the reality of it. And it's bombardment. What is wrong with Donald Trump? To me, there is not a thing wrong with him. And some of my friends who would support us of his said, well, maybe he shouldn't tweet so much. You know, he says this, and he shouldn't say that. I said, listen, slow down. We didn't vote for a man to speak eloquently and to lean on their shoulder when something sensitive. We voted for a tough guy that speaks like we do. Okay? It's not, here it is. Here's the big line right here. It's not what a man says. It's what a man does. Period. And that's who we that's have. Right. And that's who we need. Um, uh, Scott, this is my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett, a Navy veteran, uh, author of over 24 books. What are you, up to 26, 27, Curtis? Uh, around that number, 26. <laughs> but oh, I do Curtis. have a question. <laughs> let, me, uh, let me just Scott. introduce myself. Curtis, it's nice to meet you, and I would yeah. love to thank you for your service because I do a lot for the that. veterans. Why? Why do I do a lot for the veterans? Because I didn't have the galloons to do what you guys did, so I therefore love my freedom to be a crazy son of a gun. That's the beauty of it, and it's because of you. So I thank you wholeheartedly uh, and sincerely. I thank you for your support. Now, as you know, the the left seems to have a disdain for our national emblem. And I was just just curious as to why and what your thoughts were on that, since they always seem to not want to, you know, stand up and cross their heart, they pledge allegiance. And now, like in the sports world, everybody's taking a knee except for a few patriotic um, athletes. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Because I noticed you... You pay homage a lot in your paintings to the national. Yes. Symbol. Yes. Uh, get a little feedback from you guys. A little feedback. No, I'm clear on my end. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's better. That's better. Yeah. Again, I mean, what I saw. You know, I'll get to your question. I'll get. To, I'm going to answer your question. I'm going to start with this. You know, like I said, I went to find myself when I saw. You know, I guess every so many generations and, uh, you know, patriotism takes a little bit of a dip and it happened in the sixties with Vietnam. And, um, you know, then thank God for Ronald Reagan who boosted that. And again, why do you love Ronald Reagan, Scott, so much? Number one reason, because he boosted patriotism. Nothing is better or sexier than for a country than patriotism. And I said, the flag that it's, it's bad. It's, this is bad. That's bad. They're saying, and you know what? We do have faults. She has her faults, but her rewards outweigh her faults. And what is my mission in life? What did God give me a mission to do? He gave me a mission to show and shine the light on what is good about that flag, about America. Okay? So are there flaws? Yes. Well, is it a shame, the slavery that we had? Yes. I was brought up by my mom who taught me to love everybody. She sent me to the worst school in the community that was mostly minority. It was a tough school when all our other white friends went to the white school because she wanted us to learn culture. Okay, there you go. Back to your answer, learning. So, listen, if I was on that bus 
when that white guy told Rosa Parks to get to the back of the bus, that guy would have been in stitches in the hospital and I would have been in jail. That's how I am. Now, this is the point, what you said about where we are with the, you know, the hatred towards our national symbol, the American flag. That flag, I'm going to ramble here, so stay with me. What is, what, why is that, Scott, why that flag? Why are you huddled under that symbol to promote it and paint it and celebrate it? That's like the Nazis did that under a symbol. You know, it's jingoistic. Why? I said, because let me tell you why. This is the greatest flag ever, ever in the history of civilization. Why? Because what does it represent? What does America represent, folks? America represents the melting pot. No other place on this planet do people do whatever they can to get into this nightclub. The line is 20 blocks long. This is the hottest nightclub in town. Why? Because we let everybody come here. We don't care who you sleep with, who you pray to, what you do. This is America. That's what it's all about. No other country. Italy's flag represents Italians. Germany, Germany. India, India. And so on. No one. No one. That's why it is the greatest, as I call it, work of art in the history. I've seen the Sistine Chapel and I cried when I seen it. I flirted with the Mona Lisa at the Louvre when I was in France and I cried. I touched the painful brushstrokes of a Vincent Van Gogh and I cried. The masters, the greatest works of art. But to this little crazy man, the greatest work of art in the history of civilization is the Star Spangled Banner. Now, these kids today, they're not taught by their parents. They're taught by these professors. These professors, okay, these washed-up hippie professors who did not pursue their own goals. So they said, well, I'll be a professor and I'll brainwash and, and spew my views onto these sponges of these children's heads. And that's where you have it. So I know it was I could have said yes or no, but <laughs> my answers are long. <laughs> oh, that was great. Um, uh, I, yeah. I shared your yeah. views. Absolutely. The problem is that we have this public education, thanks to Jimmy Carter, and a federal education uh, control of it. Um, it was a lot more critical thinking, a lot more integration when you allowed it to grow organically on its own. But once the federal government stuck their hands into it, and then that's when everything went to a hell in a handbasket. Because as soon as you attach federal dollars to something, then the federal regulations come in here. You can teach that, but you can't teach this. They opened the door with sex ed, and they were told, oh, we're going to teach them about communicable diseases, about the human body, about, you know, how to be healthy, how to eat healthy, how to exercise. That's what our, our sex ed is going to be about. But no, today it morphed into teaching them transgenderism and gender fluidity. That should not be the purview of the federal government or the school system. That is the purview of the family and their church. So they've overstepped. And as you said, they are indoctrinating these kids. I mean, my two nephews, when I talk to them, I can't even understand these kids anymore. How can you embrace socialism? How can you embrace all these crazy things? And I made a comment to my brother, and he got him pissed off. I says, well, wait until he has a family of his own, and let's see where he stands politically. You know, are they going to let the kids grow up, 
with these ideals, or are they going to find out not? I got to protect them, and maybe being a little more conservative is going to be safer for them. But instead, we allow the indoctrination. There's also the aspect again of um, I, I use my hands since I was a child. And to the day right now, I'm not, you know, people think, oh, you're, he's an artist. He's sitting, you know, with his cup of tea and painting the beautiful landscape. And No, 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 no. I'm out there hanging banners, climbing, doing murals 40 feet by 60 feet, falling off the ladders. I'm getting cuts and bruises. I carry my own paint. I sculpt with wire and I cut myself. I love that dirt and that smell and that blood on my hands when I make something. The schools don't teach kids to make anything anymore. They teach them, well, let's tr- the psychology of the two-headed tree frog and his gay cousin. Uh, you know, that's fine. But you have to teach kids to use their bleeping hands to make something. To make something. Do I love technology? Yes. But I'm also glad that I was old. I'm old enough to live my life where there wasn't technology. So I'm right in that middle, and I love that I'm in that middle. But today, it's just technology for these kids. Again, it's wonderful. But teach these kids how to work with wood, how to fix a car, because just like this happened with COVID, okay, when, you know, my, my, my cousin's nephew, was, he was like, I'm not pumping gas. My friends will laugh at me. You know, now you need a job, and now you're pumping gas. You, you know what I'm saying? That these, these kids are not taught that wood workshop. They're not. Everything is so sensitive. Everything's so delicate. You know, I, I, I say this, and I don't mean it in a negative way, but a lot of these kids never got into a bar fight and got punched in the face. They never fell off their big wheel without a 16-inch thick helmet on. They, you know, you got to crack your head a little bit for the future. When you hit your head when you're older, you, you, you're not going to just curl up into a little ball. The sensitivity, the trigger, everything's so triggered because they have nothing to do. So when a rally happens, when Antifa sucks them in, they're like, I'm part of something. They don't know what the hell they're part of. They have no idea what they're part of. And these kids are going to turn 30 and say, well, I got to get a job. I just had a baby, and I got to pay some taxes, and they change. You're always liberal when you're younger, and you, you turn more conservative. That's how the nature of the beast is, you know, but... It's just out of control that we're giving, we're giving these children, okay, mental, mentally children, the equality of an adult who's educated and who knows a little bit about, more about life. I'm not saying all of them. I have a lot of millennial friends and kids that have millennials that are good, uh, good kids. They go out and party. You know, just because you go out and party and some kid might, uh, you know, get a little stoned with a joint, you know, that means they can't be patriotic. Or, you know, oh, I did this. I, I have to be so conservative to be a patriot. No, that's even more. That's more a reason for you to be patriotic because you're allowed to do a few things that maybe aren't right, but you're not going to get your hands caught, cut off like if you are in another, you know, Middle Eastern country. It's, uh, it's, it's so much, but it's so little. And I see it as right now that, you know, the sun, it's always darkest before dawn. And I don't think we'll come to the civil war, you know, kind of aspect where they keep saying, you know, these Antifa, we're going to take that. We're going to have a civil war. You're not going to have a civil war because it's going to last a half an hour because none of you have a license to carry a gun. The other side does. Well, there's a lot of things that are moving parts that are going on right now. We, we've got we've got the the election coming up. We've got these 
Antifa BLM riots going on in Portland, Seattle, in, in major Democratic strongholds throughout the nation. And then we have this quarantine with COVID, this forced isolation of individuals, which causes an increase of drug use, uh, alcohol abuse, physical and mental abuse, because people are, are social animals. They need to get out and socialize. Once you take that away, they lose their touch with the reality. And now we've got the schools closed. You have so many moving parts. Mainstream America that the mainstream media doesn't get is going to be awoken, and come November 3rd, it's going to be a ballot box revolution. And people are going to look to someone like you for leadership, or like Curtis and me for the information they get off the show. They're going to say, hey, wait a minute, we're getting the information from the wrong source. And they're going to look to people like you, Scott. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's there's the whole thing with this election coming up. And listen, Donald Trump, I don't care what you say, you don't like the color of his hair, you don't like the suits he wears, the ties, you don't like how his hair flows in him, whatever it is. You got to look at the big picture. This man is the greatest chess player that ever lived. This man will walk in a room with a thousand people and he would read everybody's face. When, I, when, they, when, when that happened in Portland, when they took on Seattle, and they took over, and they took over as a new country, okay, I said, send in the bleeping Marines because they're invading. And then I sat back. And the next day, nothing happened. And I said, ah, I get it. This president, this chess player, is letting it happen. He's letting it happen so the country can see, come November, all he has to do is point to that and say, is that what you want for the rest of America? Or do you want law and order, a great economy, a great economy for all races, what he's done to the black community with the schools, with the jail reform, the letting out of a lot of these people that are in jail for stupid reasons are minorities. And he helped them do that. The economy, the jobs for the black community. How do you when somebody says he's a racist? I said, you tell me right now how he's a racist. Oh, well, he said this. Shut up. Tell me what you got. Facts. Show me facts. Well, he wants to build a wall and keep illegal immigrants out. Did you just say illegal? That's right. We are a free nation, but we are a nation of laws. And we are tired. Not me. The middle America, the gears of this, of this machine are fed up with people that are taken, and they get everything handed to them. Let me get back to this quickly, and I'll get out. The handout. The handout. The old Chinese proverb. You give a man a fish, he eats for a day. You teach him how to fish. You give him incentive. This is another thing we don't have. Incentive. I love incentive. I don't care if you want to open up a hot dog stand or you want to be an astronaut and all in between. When you make that dollar and you're doing something with your hands, you go to sleep at night. Incentive. And why, why am I a Republican more than a Democrat? Because that's what they tell them. You stay home, we'll take care of you. This is America. You come here the right way, the way we all did. We will help you for six months, a year to get on your feet. Then you're on your own. Not now. Stay here all you want. Here you go. Free, free, free. And what do they do? They turn around and they urinate on the flag. They don't even look at the flag. It's, this is why Trump is going to win again. Well, there's a Gallup poll that just came out just recently, and it was showing that black Americans from the age 30 and under are becoming disenfranchised with the Democratic Party because they go in there, these liberals, they make all these promises, 
And yep. then all yep. they do yep. is give the little the little cheese, the little handouts, and they become dependent upon government. And they're starting to wise up. They're saying, you kept on giving us all these promises. They're empty. And all you get, you get from us is going to be our votes. No, the votes are gone now, and we're going to look elsewhere. And we're showing the numbers changing in the African-American community more gearing towards Trump than ever before. So I said it's going to be a ballot box revolution. We have a problem with the generations of kids coming up who have never been taught how to fail and try again. They're getting, yes. oh, you're going to run a race. Every, you're going to get a medal that says everyone ran. No, there's got to be a winner and there's got to be a loser. And we're not going to learn how to be survivalists unless we learn first how to overcome failure and pursue that happiness that is written in that Declaration of Independence. We're not guaranteeing happiness. We're going to say, yeah, you're going to fail, but you can pick yourself up and start all over again. You go to a lot of countries, once you fail, you're a failure for the rest of your life. Not in America. But we're teaching generations to be dependent, to not try, to accept that handout, to be accept what the government and media tells you as the truth without questioning it, without seeking with a free voice. And that's another thing. Freedom of speech is being stifled. Freedom of religion is being stifled. And that's another topic that you, you got tackled. Because I said I've got that montage playing up on uh, Facebook on the video of you dressed as a Christmas tree. And I think that's hysterical, that story. People still talk about that. That was 10 years ago. That, that's, people say every time, Scott, you've done 100 of these things, but the best one was you dressing up as the Christmas tree. Again, back to political correctness and me warning people. People were laughing at me when I was getting in handcuffs because I was painted a flag on a school because they wouldn't do the Pledge of Allegiance two months after 9-11, and the school was on the Upper West Side of New York City, and I won that battle. And the same thing with the Christmas tree. And I'm warning you people, it's boiling. This political correctness is coming to eat us alive. And now everyone is coming. That's another thing. People are coming to me because they're like, you were warning us. You were Paul Revere and we didn't listen. And here it is. So, yeah, somebody was offended by the Christmas tree that was in the Staten Island Ferry Terminal for the last 200 years. And, of course, they city took it away. And I said, no, they will not. So I spent... $500 on materials, and I built a Christmas tree suit with lights and batteries and everything, and I walked around the ferry terminal. And I would just put my legs, bend my knees, so the tree would be flush to the ground as if it was a decoration. And when people got off the boat, I would jump up like a candid camera moment and say, Merry Christmas. And everybody laughed and everybody loved it. And everybody, not one person was upset about it. It was a great social experiment. So there's a lot of that stuff I do. When it's wrong, I go to fix it. Not to fix it, but to let people know through art. This is why I have this great, it's, it's just it's a wonderful gift. Again, why am I so patriotic? Because God gave me a gift. My mother and father molded that gift. And the men and women, Curtis, of the armed forces, gave me the right to use it. So I'm using it for the better to teach people, to educate people, give up the shit. That's my line. I use it all the time. The Battle of Lake Erie, the famous battle cry by Captain Perry. Don't give up the ship. Don't give up the ship. The ship is going down. They're on here. 
that it's guys like Mayor de Blasio and Nancy Pelosi and everybody else who just hates this country so much. They hate it. They don't, I don't care when they, they put their hands on the house for that flag. They don't like this country. And I'm going to, to the day I die or how I die, I will be doing that for the rest of my life. And on my tombstone, it is not going to say Scott Lobato, great American artist. I want it to say Scott Lobato, great American patriot. Well, you do a lot to support the veterans. And also, you take to heart the record number per day of veterans that commit suicide. Now, at the time you made your artwork, the 22, it was 22 veterans a day. And I had done a recent interview with another veterans advocate. Thankfully, we've got it down to 20, but even that is one too many. And it's an issue that's being ignored, the number of homelessness of the veterans. And a lot of the homelessness now are becoming female veterans up in the streets. Uh, but it's, a, it's something that you support. You even go to um, the veteran associations and vets, uh, the VA, not the VA, um, oh, good Lord, brain farts again, uh, Curtis. Um, but you go to the different uh, legions and you paint the American flag on there. And for the veterans, you bring this artwork around. You've done it for all 50 states. Yes. What? Why? 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 Because you, you, you know, the veterans, they don't ask for anything. These are the superheroes of the world. These are the celebrities. If I'm in the bar and I see a celebrity at the bar, I don't care if it's my favorite celebrity. If it's a Victoria's Secret model, and I, well, if it's a, maybe, I, let me take take that back. If it's a Victoria's Secret model, I will go over and say hello to her. <laughs> <laughs> But if I see a veteran at the other end of the bar, I will bypass that celebrity. I don't care if it's John Wayne. I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's Frank Sinatra. One of my, I love Frank Sinatra. I go over to that World War II, uh, that, that Vietnam veteran with his beard and his tattoos, and he's sitting in his drink by himself, and I go over to him, and I tap him on the shoulder, and I say, welcome home. And I walk away. He doesn't acknowledge me. But I know I made his week because it made my day. So it's to bring attention to these heroes that sit in these little dilapidated boxes on the side of Route 1, and they're, they're just this plain building. So I went and I painted a flag on it. So when some kid is in the backseat of his dad's car, and they're driving past it, and the kid goes, look at that beautiful flag. What's that all about, Dad? And the father says, that's where the heroes hang out, son. Those are the men and women who allow us to go to the ballpark tonight. That's what that means, to educate the next generation. My artwork, if you see it, it's not just a straight flag with red, white, and blue. It's three-dimensional. You could walk through the folds. There's nine different colors. People say, well, there's orange in that. I don't think there's any orange in the flag, Scott. And I say, back up 10 feet, now look at it. Oh, yeah. Those colors are in there at dusk and at dawn when that sun is shining on that beautiful piece of artwork. It highlights that red into oranges and purples and, and, and dark blues and light blues and gold and, and grays. And what is that's the color of our diversity. That's what it is. It pops out at you. And what do kids need? They need visual stimulation. I have a huge fan base of grammar school kids. When I go to their school and paint a flag on stage and three minutes to music, and they go wild like I'm a rock star. And if I leave that building and three kids are memorized and want to learn more about the flag and the veterans, then I win. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now, country is not 
the only thing that's important to you. Your faith is also important to you. Uh, because Mother Cabrini, which has a statue in Manhattan, there's also the Cabrini Hospital. You put a statue there when everyone said, yes, you need a statue, and New York State said no? No, well, here's the thing. I, um, you know, again, I, my, my grandmother was the mentor of the family, Nana. You walk in her basement, there was three portraits on the wall. Frank Sinatra, Ronald Reagan, and John Paul too. She taught us how to be patriotic and to appreciate what God had given us. And Mother Cabrini, okay, once the story broke, it was a matter of the city, okay? Mayor de Blasio and his wife, they set up a competition to get women that influenced New Yorkers to make sculptures of them, okay? And unanimously, who won, hands down, Mother Cabrini. And what did de Blasio and his wife do? They said no. They said no. So the Italian community went up in arms. And in between everything else I'm doing, I said, I got to make a change here. Because I know, I remember going up to the Mother Cabrini Shrine up on the hill in the Bronx. And my grandmother would take us all on the train and the buses to go see it. And now I learned later on why. Because my great-grandmother, who was in the tenements, was sick with consumption. And Mother Cabrini came and prayed over her. And that was in our family. So there he is, the activism and the passionate man and the word from God. Listen, I wasn't always the greatest guy. Sometimes people say, Scott, you're so wonderful, you're so great. And they say, ah, I'm making some steps up for some steps I took backwards in my younger years. So there was a commission to put a memorial, a tribute, a statue. So what I did is I made a three-foot one that I was going to have made into a bigger one to put somewhere. And I shopped it around. I put it in front of St. Patrick's Cathedral, and I had people come and sign up. I was on a bunch of news programs. And then COVID hit. And that just everything got put aside because a lot of the charities that were donating to have it built, they had to put their money towards helping people with food banks and stuff like that. So that issue is still, still, still going on. Well, maybe the GoFund page or something like that could help jumpstart that. But i got to tell you a funny story about Frank Sinatra. Um, when I got engaged to my first husband and I had my bridal shower, my grandmother insisted that it was down in New Jersey where most of the family was. And I hear everyone talking about Frankie this, Frankie that, Frankie this, Frankie that. And I said, uh, Grandma, yes. I don't recall having a cousin Frankie. And she goes, ah, leave me alone. So I go to my, my mom and I turn around to my mom and I says, who's this Frankie? Oh, I didn't know we had a cousin Frankie. Oh, they saw Frank Sinatra on TV at the Dinner Awards, and he wasn't sitting next to his wife, so they're all talking about that. <laughs> so, Listen, it's Sinatra so true. My grandmother did the same thing. Frank Sinatra would eat his broccoli. Frank Sinatra did his homework when he was a kid. I swear to you, it was the same exact thing at my grandmother's house. <laughs> oh, man. And, of course, in, that, in the house, when you stepped into their house, you could not speak Italian, even though both of my grandfather and my grandmother were yes. off the Italian. You yeah, had to speak English. So, you know, I'm, you I'm, came I'm, to America. I'm, this was a, yep. a melting pot. You're becoming an American. Yes. I mean, it's kind of sad because I wish I knew the language. You know, like I said, I've been to Italy. And even when I'm in an Italian restaurant, I look very Italian because I am. And people talk to me in Italian because they assume that I know it. And I say, I'm sorry. I, you know, I know my basics, you know. But uh, because that's what it was. Our great-grandparents came here. 
They taught my grandmother and grandparents perfect English. You wouldn't know it, but they also spoke Italian. And then my parents didn't hardly speak Italian. They knew a little bit of it, and then we just got none of it. And again, it wasn't because they were ashamed. It was because this is America, and you're going to learn English. Have your other culture. Absolutely. But again, back to what I said. Come here. Bring your culture. Bring your organic culture from each corner of your world. Bring it. I eat, drink, and sleep across the country with these people. And it's beautiful. I learned it's, that's the sexiness of it. It's very sexy. Not in a sexual way, in an artistic way, in a, in a humanity way. It's, it's just it's a, it's a very beautiful, beautiful thing. And that's what it's all about. But it, it's, they, they brought over from the old country the want to have the freedom that we have, to enjoy the prosperity that we have. And it was so very important to them that they understood that, yes, they have their own personal culture, but this is a melting pot. And everyone yes. works together as a united people. And I can put it no better than what my grandmother said to me. She called me over. She goes, Anuch, Sedenica. She goes, you will know the only difference between an Italian and a Jew is that we put a tomato in our chicken and soup. <laughs> yeah. In other words, there's really yeah. no difference. No. So, you no. know, we really are not. all one people. We are unhyphenated yeah. Americans. And if we do that... We won't have this rioting, and we could have more opportunities for people to pull themselves up in life. But it's like I said, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. That's what makes her perfect. Is that she strives? We're only two hundred and forty-four years old. We are a puppy on this world stage. It's like a new family who just had a baby. There's going to be bumps in the road, but eventually you're going to fix those bumps, like we did with the gay community. You know, it's not. You know, it's they're not. It, the whole point about this whole gender and this and that. It's not that we don't accept them. It's that when they take it and they jam it down our throats and say, we are special. No, you're not. You're equal. You're different. You're equal. But, you know, again, this is from a New York, uh, you know, I do have a liberal side. That's why the art world does hate me and the liberals do hate me because I have a compassionate side. I have gay friends. I have gay people in my family. But they just act like everybody else. It's when you get to this, you know, I mean, to the point where it's like, you have to know, the guy in West Virginia that works 16 hours in a coal mine, he doesn't care who you're sleeping with. He doesn't care who you believe in, what religion. All he cares about is his kids getting fed and going to school and paying his mortgage. When you change everything and you jam that down his throat, you know, every day and you cause regulations and you have big burly men that put a skirt on and go into the bathroom where your six-year-old daughter's going into, that's not going to happen. He doesn't care what you do. Live your life. It's just the point of that, you know? And that's why, yeah, did we have a problem? Look, the gay community now, it's a little more accepted. They fought. The black community fought. Still fighting. But isn't that part of America? Isn't that what makes it beautiful is there's a fight? There's nothing sexier than fighting for something. Do you know what it's like being an artist in New York City? I have a glass ceiling because I vote Republican, because I believe in God, because I, I, I like NASCAR, because, you know, I don't pronounce my R's properly because I'm not uptown hoity-toity. I have a glass ceiling, not comparing it at all to anybody else or, you know, what the black community went through or the gay community. Not at all. But there are glass ceilings. There's struggle. We, that's what we do. We fight. We fight. We, we march. We fight. We don't burn and pillage and break and name. We fight. We use our voices. That's what this is all about. 
And now we're going to be okay. It's going to take a while, but we're going to be okay because we are America. The glass to me is half full. Well, Scott, people can find you by going to your name. There's a link on the show page, which is up on Facebook, Spreaker, Blog Talk Radio, all of course. It'll be going up on YouTube later on tonight. They go to Scott, C-O-T-T, Lobedo, L-O-B-A-I-D-O.com. You also have a shop up there where people can buy your artwork as well as T-shirts and stuff with your artwork on it. So, you know, it, it is a very informative page, and they can see all the wonderful things you, you have done. And the largest American flag ever created that you had done um, to help victims of a storm, as well as the sculptures you did right after Hurricane Sandy. You work in so many different mediums. It's not just paint. So people can see the true uh, uh, expanse of your work. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like when I first started, I would pull cabinet doors off of the basement kitchen and use that as a canvas, whatever it takes. I love to just keep trial and error. I'm not an artist that has one style. You know, I have one main subject, but then I just, it's all about, you know, one day I'll, I'll, I'll bring you to tears when I put up a memorial for two cops who were killed or Hurricane Sandy victims. And then the next day I'll drive a giant 20-foot Trump 2020 billboard through the streets of Manhattan and I will get so much hate you know, responses. I, I'm a provocateur. <laughs> I provoke emotion on all spectrums. It's a social experiment, and I love using it. I can't wait to get off the phone with you, not because I don't want to talk for another two hours, but because i got to create. I have to get my hands moving. I'm walking around. I'm not sitting down. You think I'm sitting down? I'm very <laughs> hyper. I'm walking around. You know, I'm passionate. I'm sweating. Well, as we say, you know, the only way to stop an Italian from talking is tie their hands behind their backs. Well, Scott, it has uh, yes. been a pleasure yes. speaking with you, uh, and I will have to have you back. we got to find out who won that auction, too, and yes, how much yes, won I'll let, I'll, Yes, I'll give you that. Uh, I'll get that information. Leticia will send you that information. That would be great. Yeah, I'm very excited about that. Anyway, thank you so much for really uh, letting me uh, spew my uh, passion here. And, Curtis, again, I cannot thank you enough for my awesome freedom I appreciate well, that. God bless you. God bless you for the hard work you do. Keep it up, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. Uh, what? What an interview! What a, a, a energetic, patriotic, and loving man. I mean, you can feel his passion for country and for the people in it. So we need more people just like that. And I'm dying to find out who won the auction. Um, <laughs> we're waiting for our next. Uh, guest to call in. Liz Harrington was scheduled to be with us, but last minute she had to cancel and instead Paris Denard should be calling in very shortly. But while we're talking about that, um, we had mentioned, Curtis, several times when we were talking to Scott about mainstream media. Well, guess what? Finally, an MSNBC producer uh, or as uh, Sean Hannity say last night, MS Yaya or uh, <laughs> whatever <laughs> admits that uh, the cable news is a cancer that risks human life. Uh, Ariana Picari, she's a former NBC producer, she wrote an open letter, which was really telling, where she outlined the problems with the news, how they uh, misrepresent facts, how they create news, how they lie to the people. And it places people at risk by not knowing what the truth is out there. There is no longer truth in journalism. 
if you do find it, there it's is. far and few between. You might find it on Newsmax or OAN. Um, sometimes you get it correct on Fox. Sometimes they get it wrong, and I have to scream at the TV. Uh, but, you know, here you have a cable news producer admitting the slant of the news and quitting because she says it's just too crazy. Well, it's all agenda-driven, and I look at it as um, something that's been uh, pre-planned. Um, you look at these journalists who are going through the state school systems and some of these other liberal colleges, and this is what they're being taught. You know, they are being taught to to be activists, not reporters of news. They are there to shape the news, and that's. I mean, we're seeing the fruits of that now, unfortunately. Well, you know, um, she wrote. It's possible that I'm more sensitive to the editorial process due to my background in public radio, where no decision I ever witnessed was predicated on how a topic or guest would rate. The longer I was at MSNBC, the more I saw such choices. It's practically baked into the editorial process, and those decisions affect news content every day. Likewise, it's taboo to discuss how the rating schemes distorts content or simply taken for granted because everyone in the commercial broadcast news industry is doing the same exact thing. And that's what I said. Ratings are what drives the news. The more money they can get from advertisers, and the higher the ratings are, the more money they get. It's about follow the Benjamins and not about truth in journalism. And she goes on to say, this cancer risks human lives even in the middle of a pandemic. The primary focus quickly became what Donald Trump was doing poorly to address the crisis rather than the science itself. As new details have become available about antibiotics, a vaccine, or how COVID actually spreads, producers still want to focus on the politics. Important facts or studies get buried. You know, we've had several people who have had their websites pulled down off of uh, their accounts pulled down off of Facebook and Twitter and so, several of the social networks if they say chloroquine works. Now, this is proven by science that chloroquine that has been around for more than 50 years can help people in the early stages of COVID. Not in the late stages, in the early stages if it gets caught. But no, it is taboo to say that. If you even mention the chloroquine, your account is yanked. She says, this cancer risks our democracy, even in the middle of a presidential election. Any discussion about the election usually focuses on Donald Trump, not Joe Biden. A repeat offense from 2016. Trump smothers out all other coverage. Also important is to ensure citizens can vote by mail this year. I've watched that topic get ignored or killed numerous times. And here we had talking earlier with Shane Hazel about the hazards of mail-in balloting. There's a, a group here in South Carolina that approached our governor last week asking for mail-in balloting without a verifying signature. How do you know the person who sent in that ballot is the actual voter? How do you know if that person well, really won't. is a live person? There You'll is no know. way to verify so, yeah. But that, this is, this I think that's part of their plan to, to to jack up the process 
so they can declare a winner, you know, or to contest it, have a contested election that drags on and on. And uh, I think, you know, they want to go back to the Gore-Bush election. And hopefully, I think they're hoping that the Supreme Court, well, they're hoping that they will have uh, a Supreme Court with um, one of so-called the conservative judges, you know, um, side with, with them and declare, you know, a winner, a presidential winner. I I don't know. It just seems as though the left is just hell-bent on being disruptive. And that's you know, their they're, they're trying to predict. They're trying to predict the results, and every time they try to predict the results, they get it wrong. Do you remember the debacle with Truman? They already had the newspapers already printed up. Now they were already declaring Hillary Clinton the winner back in 2016. Yeah. And now they're trying to say Joe Biden would be the winner. Well, he doesn't even have a vice presidential running mate just yet. He has yet to come out of his basement. And every time he opens his mouth, he gives one more gap gaff after another. Now all of a sudden, um, if you don't vote for Biden, then you're not black. But he compounds that by saying that Latinos are more diversified in their thinking than black Americans. Wait a minute. He just insulted every single black American across our nation. Excuse me. You have to think in lockstep with what Joe Biden wants you to think. You're not allowed to think on your own independently. You have to do everything he says because he says it. You can't have independent thought. Wait a minute. Isn't that another form of the plantation, Joe Biden? Isn't that another form of some sort of slavery, mental slavery, free speech slavery, freedom of religion slavery, your ability to vote slavery? Joe, Joe has that mindset from the 50s and 60s. Um, we could look back at his policies and his views, and he generally sided with the racists and um, the Dixiecrats. Even though he wasn't one, he, he was in support of their policies. And he was very outspoken in a number of ways uh, on his views about race. So I'm not surprised. As far as uh, offending all blacks, Nah, because there are black liberals out there defending the undefensible, you know. So it's, again, it's all about uh, an agenda. And as far as blacks on the left, they're going to, I guess, accept any kind of insult if it advances their agenda, their cause. You know... (laughs) I, I, I never thought I would ever see an election cycle like I've seen in this one. I honestly never thought. You know, I thought it was the one with uh, in 2000 with Al Gore and Bush. I thought that was crazy. The hysteria after the election of Donald Trump, I thought that was crazy. But this, hands down, takes the cake. This really, really does, hands down, takes the cake. You've got movements to defund the police. You've got the Antifa movement, and now we know the Marxist origination of the Black Lives Matter. 
what was thought of as a good movement, which could have done a lot of good, has been hijacked by Marxism and by leftists. And so, no, it's, it's, it's okay to go loot. It's okay to attempt to murder police officers who are barricaded in their station house by trying to set the station house on fire. It's okay to do that, guys. What the heck with, you know, you know morals? Heck with ethics? Heck with, you know, respecting other people's property and lives? Heck with the law. What law? Let's have complete anarchy. And that's good for us. It's a big peace fest like they had at, uh, uh, oh, good Lord. Am I having brain farts? Woodstock. (laughs) No, Jerry Nadler denies that there's any violent protest. No, these are all peaceful protesters, just like Woodstock. It's a huge love fest. Yeah, it, it, well, I'll, and, I'll tell you what's at the core of all of this and, and why this is such a, a crucial election coming up. And that's because the next president is probably going to replace two Supreme Court justices. I'm, I, I have no doubt in the next four years we're going to lose um, two Supreme Court justices. One probably will resign, maybe two, and some may not even live out their terms. But the thing is, that's very crucial to people because it's the Supreme Court who usually have the final say in, in policy in this country. And we've seen that in the past couple of years when it came to certain, um, you know, certain cases that were brought before them. So I believe that is why it is so essential to the left and to the right to win the White House and and Congress, but so more so the White House, because the president gets to pick Supreme Court justices. Oh, that is true. That is true. But, you know, Bill Barr had testified before Congress just this past week, and no one is really talking about that. Why? Because it doesn't follow their narrative. And here you and I are discussing what could have been a good movement with Black Lives Matter by exposing the increase of violence, black-on-black violence, in the inner cities, like Chicago or Atlanta or L.A., and looking for ways to stop it. But no one on the left is talking about it. So Bill Barr brings it up. And he is, he's not a Democrat, and it's no black, no Democrat, no black member of Congress have told the truth about black victims of crime or the threat to black lives in our streets, that it's massively greater than any threats posed by police. He turned around and told him that approximately 7,500 black Americans are victims of homicide each year. That's the vast majority. Around 90% are killed by other blacks and declared that each one of those lives matter. Now, we discussed it where two black police officers were killed because of the Black Lives Matter rioting. But it didn't matter that they were black. They were part of law enforcement, so their lives didn't matter, even though they are blacks. So there's a lot of hypocrisy we're seeing here, and the left is falling for it, and they're accepting this violence as the new norm. And yet Bill Barr has the audacity to address Congress. He gets cut off. He gets spoken over, he gets lectured, he gets called names, but the man held grace and he told the truth.
Well, you I mean, Did speaking, I just briefly, we about to have a serious thunderstorm here. But speaking oh. to truth is, is, is what we are lacking today. You really don't hear politicians speaking the truth. They're, they're, they're speaking what they believe their constituents want to hear. And I think that's the true nature of why they have such a low approval rating in Congress, because we know they're not men and women of their word. They're whatever they 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 believe others want them to be. So they're not really their own person, except for maybe a few. And I would say uh, that my congressman, Ted Yoho, is one of these people that speak the truth. And um, oh, we need more like that. Yeah, we need more oh, like that. To stand up for people that. like AOC. Uh, yeah, we, I, we should have had him on the show today because when I saw him and then he later on did an interview, I think it was on Fox, and explaining what had occurred, he never said the things he, she claims he said. He wasn't even within hearing distance for her to hear him say what she claims he said. You know, it, it, this again is another one of those crafted straw men AOC loves to bandy about. This is not the first time she caught making stories up. It makes her a victim. So people feel sorry for her and continue to vote for her and support her wild causes. Uh, poor Ted. And, and I would say, I can understand if she did it to someone that was running for re-election, but Ted's not. So, you know, why? <laughs> I thought she would attack she someone that care. would, you know, be threatening. But no, attack She doesn't care. Get your 15 minutes of fame. Get your numbers up. <laughs> yeah, she's a oh, media man. hound. True media hound. Well, she loves like to be in front of the camera. Our, yeah, it looks like our RNC... Um, guest is not going to be showing up so I'm going to go through some of the stuff that I would have been talking with him about and um, Kelly McEnany uh, torched the Democrats citing rising crime statistics across the cities and you have Minneapolis uh, City Council voted to defund the police department, the entire police department. Uh, In Los Angeles, LA Mayor Eric Garcetti has proposed to cut $150 million from LAPD. Uh, New York City, uh, to fund the police, have cut the budget by $1 billion. And here AOC said, to fund the police means defunding the police. It does not mean budget tricks or funny math. Um, and Kelly McEnany said, you know, uh, we have seen a 177% increase in shootings from July 2019 in New York City alone. Holy cow, a 177% increase in shootings, in violent crimes in New York City alone. And President Trump has put together this project legend, which is named after a, a, a toddler that was killed. Last name was L-E-G-E-N-D. And he just put that together to honor the child that was killed in his stroller. And now he's extended this for not just one or two cities like Portland, Seattle. He's put it to nine different cities that are hotspots. It's time that we bring law back to our streets. We 
time we bring safety back to our streets. And he said, all right, this is going on long enough. Your city mayors, your state governors are doing nothing to protect the innocent civilians, to protect the properties and businesses out there. It's time for me to do something. And I, 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 I cheer him for that. Well, I'm yeah, in I agreement. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear that thundering in the background. I, I thought uh, I heard a little been, something. Yeah, we yeah. we had that storm come through the other day, this big hurricane, and it turned out to be nothing. I think we got rain for like 10 minutes, no winds. And now that it's passed, we've been raining every day <laughs> like there is a hurricane out there. <laughs> Man, um, it, it did nothing to me here in, on the South Carolina coast, but it did hit pretty hard up in uh, North Carolina. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who lives also in Staten Island, like Scott did, and uh, he said they got hit pretty hard, too. Hmm. But I don't know. I just and, think... Um, Oh, I just want to remind our listeners that the show, as of this week, has moved to the new time slot because we're now on WCET-FM out of Columbia, South Carolina. So in order to fit into that slot, we now start at 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock, and then that's Eastern Standard Time or New York City Time. If you put down Eastern Date Time, it's the same thing. Uh, So depending upon where you are, um, just adjust your schedule so you can continue to enjoy our fine content and our great guests. Oh, here's, here's <laughs> something I'll make you really happy, Curtis. Ilian Omar, you know, she's up for re- Ilian Omar, she's up for re-election. And I mean, the crap is hitting the fan around her. There's another investigation on her funneling money to her husband's coffers. But her hometown you mean her brother? newspaper... No, this new husband. She divorced oh, one recently. She divorced her brother. And then, okay. this is, <laughs> then there's a new one she's got. That was pretty damn Maybe good. that's a cousin. Uh, but cousin. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that was the one that worked as her publicist or whatever it was. I forget now. I can't keep track with this woman. Okay. Um, um, her quest for re-election, her own home pal, home town newspaper, if I can say that three times fast, has endorsed her challenger, citing concerned over her ethical distractions and calling her, her someone who wants to lead a movement instead of serving the constituents of the 5th District. The Star Tribune, the largest newspaper in the state, endorsed Democratic candidate Antoine Melton Mayu over Omar in an editorial published two days ago on Wednesday. Um, it has attracted, her campaign has attracted millions of dollars in an effort to unseat the incumbent with a history of anti-Israel and anti-Semitic comments. So finally, someone realizes she is the bigot that we have been all saying the whole long time. And yeah, they're mean- doing whatever they can. To unseat her. She's from Somalia, if I'm not mistaken, and um, that's Islamic-based yeah. um, country. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just sad that we we 
let people into this country who come here and want to change it to like where they left. I mean, they might as well just stay home. Mm-hmm. Well, I got to tell you, um, I'm not plugging someone else's book, but Sean Hannity has a new book out. And guess what? The Trump campaign is saying that if you send $75 to the campaign, you will get, I believe, is it an autograph? Um, let me see. Uh, it's authorized by the Trump headquarters and signed by Team Trump 2020. And they're giving anyone who donates $75 to the Trump campaign uh, priority access to these signed copies. So mm. that's all it is. If you want to get a signed from the Trump campaign to get his, uh, Hannity's book, make a donation and help Trump get reelected. And on top of that, which has helped pump his uh, campaign coffers up even more, Sportsmen for Trump, that coalition has mobilized conserv- conservationists to protect and defend American hunting heritage. And they have now come out endorsing Trump. So he's getting more and more endorsements day by day. But what you hear from and the Biden campaign... Endorsements. Yeah, absolutely big endorsements. But from the Biden campaign, I, as I was talking to my friend uh, yesterday from Staten Island, he used to work on a lot of political campaigns, and he was giving some of the lowdown and some of the scuttlebutt he's been hearing that the Biden campaign cannot even keep workers. Now, the Trump campaign has people out there working the phone banks, um, knocking on doors, Biden has zero out there. They're not making the phone calls. They're not knocking on doors. I don't know what they're relying on in order to give his campaign a boost or put money in the coffers, but you're hearing crickets. Mm -hmm. You're hearing a lot of crickets (laughs) out there. And you know what? Crickets. We're 80 some odd days away from the election. And the hits keep on coming. The hits keep on coming. Yeah. Yeah. You know something? um, I never lived in New York, but I'm thinking about taking up uh, Cuomo's offer to come up and have dinner and a nice out, you know, out on the town evening and then watch a Godfather movie or something and then tell him, you know, no, thank you. I think (laughs) I'm going to go back to Florida. Thanks for the dinner. But this guy has so many people away from New York. Now he's in almost a desperate situation that, you know, he's got to make these these kind of um, requests of people, you know, business people. Uh, did you hear the latest thing that happened down at Mar-a-Lago? What a bunch of uh-uh. numbnuts. These three 15-year-olds, one of them takes their mom's car. Now, I don't think in the state of Florida you're of legal age to drive a vehicle without supervision of a licensed adult in the car. You know, I think you only have a a learner's permit or a student permit or something like that at the age of 15. You don't have a full driver's license. Oh, definitely. Well, these these three numbnuts took mom's car, whether or not she knew it or not. She'd probably say, oh, I let him take the car. Or I didn't know he took the car. I left the keys out. So it's not being considered a stolen vehicle. But they obviously did a little um, sticky fingering shopping. Sticky finger shopping, you know what I mean? Somehow or other, they came into the possession 
of an AR-15. Sent up in their hand. They had wow. kind of like fell into their laps. And they came into a possession of an AR-15. Well, cops see them driving down at night at 1 a.m. in the morning, and they don't have their nighttime driving lights on. They have their daytime lights on. So that's suspicious. <laughs> so they go to pull the kids over. The kids make a run for it. They end up ditching the car, and they hop a fence to escape from the cops. But guess which fence they hopped? And don't you think there would have been Secret Service on the other side? Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> Trump's oh, Florida man. White House. I'm <laughs> not quite. Sound like a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> and when the cops Secret recover the, the AR-15 and the knapsack that they dumped, and they recover it, and they ask the kids about it, and they said, oh, we found the gun. Yeah, right. Someone's going to leave an AR-15 living, just lying around for you to just find and take. <laughs> really? I'm going to have to look like up that story. House they <laughs> Whose house did they burgle? Man. I mean, you can't fix stupid. You really can't fix no, stupid. Not at all. I mean, and now we have family members because, that are not the brightest candle on the shelf. I would say the light bulb did not work <laughs> in that box. And it looks like we got our next guest up on the line. And let me bring the teeth in straight onto the show. Once again, want to welcome Jared Shipnett. Uh, he is with Heritage Foundation. He's also with the Heritage Single, and uh, he also has a book out called The War on American History. Good afternoon, Jared. How are you doing today? Thank you very much. I'm doing quite well. Yeah, we were talking with an earlier guest um, about you know public schooling and the indoctrination and uh, what is going on with our kids today. And you, know, you have to just shake your head as you look at what's going on in the world and go, what, how did we go wrong? Where did we go wrong? Because I don't know if you heard me discussing these three numbnuts, 15-year-olds, <laughs> you know, getting busted going over the fence of Mar-a-Lago with an AR-15 trying to evade the cops. I mean, there's a lack of intelligence in kids coming out today. I'm not saying all kids, but certain segment of our society is, is, is lacking in <laughs> common sense. Yeah, co- common sense and I think also any kind of broader understanding of the world around them. I mean, uh, you talk about some of those stats and also the kind of depressing numbers when you, you talk about things, I think very important things like what young people know about uh, civics and about how their country and how their government works is, I think, particularly depressing. I uh, poll that came out a few years ago showed that uh, most young Americans, especially millennials and younger, can't pass a basic citizenship test. It's given to those who, who come to this country, which ask very basic questions about how our, our system of government works. And at the same time, these same young people are among the most radical and militant about all the things they think are wrong with America, all the things that they think are wrong in America compared to the rest of the world. And it's, it's an interesting distinction. It's a combination, I think, of both ignorance of history and any kind of comparison to uh, the world outside the U.S., 
uh, but a kind of arrogance as well is thinking that, well, you know, we know what's best. Uh, you know, we, we can do democracy the way that our parents and grandparents couldn't. I think there's very much that attitude that has seeped into those who are millennials, my generation, the generation coming up. But I think you're absolutely right. Our system of education, a lot of our public schools have let young Americans down, quite frankly. I mean, this is a, this is a multi-generational process of uh, lacking education and, unfortunately, even worse, indoctrination for, for a lot of young students. You know, it's funny because I grew up in an age where we didn't have computers, we didn't have beepers, um, and you actually sat down in the classroom and opened a physical book. We didn't have computer labs. So I grew up in a time where education was a little bit different, and it was in the 1970s that Jimmy Carter stepped in and federalized public education. And it was from there they started to get into the classrooms. First it was with sex ed, and we were told, uh, oh, this is just for your child's safety so they can learn about communicable disease and prevent pregnancy so at least they understand how the body works and to learn about, you know, uh, nutrition and exercise and things like that. And it sounded so benign, but now it's walked into this monster that teaches a three-, four-year-old or five-year-old that it's okay to be gender fluid. When the child, you know, is just trying to simply learn to read and write and talk properly, no, you're gender fluid. You can be whatever you want to be. And they have, they have indoctrinated our children to the point where they can no longer think independently or critically. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that sort of education, especially around transgender issues, things like that, that is coming to schools across the country. You know, one of the reasons why I oppose the kind of federalization of American education is that, you know, even if, if you oppose this, if, our, you know, our, our system becomes federalized, like what was happening with the Common Core Standards, which are becoming very uh, popular and used, uh, you know, to basically federalize standards across the country, I think you do get those kind of things, and they get imposed basically from on high. You, you don't really have any choice in the matter. It's one of the reasons why today I, I support, you know, school choice programs, I support uh, people taking their kids off and out of, of our public schools, which, you know, preach values, I think, that I think both un- un-Americanizes young Americans and teaches them, uh, doesn't teach them about civics and what our country's about, but also teaches them, I think, a radical social agenda, too. I think that that is a big component of this. You combine those things. Uh, I think there are a lot of parents right now who are looking at, at homeschooling. They're looking at putting their kids in private schools if they can, uh, especially when you combine now, we are dealing with this coronavirus pandemic and a lot of public schools and especially the union saying, you know, we won't open up and, until you, you reach our list of demands, which often have absolutely nothing to do at all with educating young children. I mean, nothing whatsoever. They're asking for universal health care and abolishing the police. And I got to think, you know, what does that have to do with, you know, educating young people? And it has nothing to do with it. And I, so, I think there are a lot of deep problems with our education system that requires Americans to have a real rethink. I mean, we've had a massive investment from the American taxpayers into the system, but I think it's no longer producing the results that we should expect. And I think that really has to change. Maybe with the crisis that we're we're you know dealing with right now, maybe it will get parents to start thinking about, hey, you know, I need to look in on what my my kids are learning in school, and I need to think about ways maybe to pull my kids out of that system uh, and, and to change that up. 
you know, it's, it's funny because I was reading numerous articles as I was doing my homework, and you have a bunch of really great ones up on Heritage Foundation, the latest one being Mob Rule Imperils Western Civilization. Now's the time for courage and leadership. Uh, but as I was looking at the statistics of kids today, uh, there's now a growing majority of kids that are coming in with um, alcohol and drug uh, abuse, uh, a growing number of kids that have disassociative um, personalities. They don't know how to interact and make friends. They're on their smart devices 24-7, and they no longer understand how to socially interact. And it, it's, it's actually, you know, if you've ever read iRobot, this is the society that this is starting to create. Yeah, I, I think you're right, and I think there is definitely an, an over-reliance on technology, you know, especially when you – I mean, look, if you, if you go back and you even read through, I had the, the, the fortune of being able to look through some of my grandfather's old college textbooks, and uh, frankly, they were of a much higher caliber than what I was getting in school. And if you, if you look back at a lot of the curriculum for younger people, you know, even a century ago, the, the the level of knowledge that was needed was at a much higher level. I think you're producing a system where, yes, you have more more young people go through uh, a public school or get an education these days, but that quality has gone down quite a bit. And as you said, a lot of the social maladies, I think a lot of them which exploded in the kind of cultural revolution that happened in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, has left a lot of young Americans unprepared for life, so to speak. I mean, now is about simply getting kids to be able to show up on time, to be able to, uh, you know, get to work and things like this. And because you have a lot of those social ills, you have a lot of people who leave school without the kind of basic knowledge of civics, but also the basic knowledge of how to simply do a job and, and, and stay off drugs and, and, and get to work on time. I mean, these are basic skills. You know, if we talk about why a lot of young Americans are falling behind uh, as far as competition in the workplace, that's a big part of it. Jerry. Yeah, I have to. Okay, go go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, one of the the reasons why the standards aren't as high as they used to be, because I mean, basically, when I entered college uh, decades ago, <laughs> it was all about higher education. You know, it was a learning um, experience. Today, I'm not sure what you want to call it, but a lot of people now have to take remedial courses even after they're accepted in the college today. That shows you how low the quality of um, our high school, you know, um, graduates have have um, come to. But um, I don't know. It's just a dumbing down of the system. And we're not going to be competitive in, in the world if we keep going down this path, you know, where – we're not getting quality education and put, putting forth our best foot. Uh, we're making it easier for people to get in college. We're making it easier for the tests that they take to qualify them for getting into college. And a lot of this is based on social justice, you know, um, tests like the SAT and, and things like that, the ACT, they're racist and, and, and whatever. But, um, we are not going to survive it as a country if we just keep flushing out, you know, these these kids with degrees that don't mean a thing. 
it is it is a sort of hollowing out uh, of the American elite, so to speak. I mean, I, I think that's that's a big part of it. I think there's a reason why Americans today have such little trust in you know the so-called experts and the so-called educated elite because. Look, I mean, we had this kind of ideology that we need to get everybody needs to get a, a four-year degree and go through that system, and I think they watered it down very much. So now the most important requirements are that you kind of think the right way and you, you kind of check all the you know the right boxes, so to speak, and they've really damaged the quality of education. And I think that that is a, a huge, huge problem for our country. And I think the I think what we're going to see, especially in the coming years, is you know, higher education is going to reach a, a real financial crisis. And a lot of people are going to say, am I getting these degrees? I'm spending all this money. I'm burying myself in debt. Can I even get a job after this? I mean, is this is this degree actually going to help me get a job in a very competitive environment that I couldn't have gotten just getting a high school degree? And that's going to, that's going to create a massive crisis. And I think there's going to be demands that Congress bail out essentially the student loans, which is essentially a bailout of the colleges and universities, I think that the bigger question is we need to have a reassessment of how higher education works in this country fundamentally. I mean, I think that's a big problem here. And I think that's really going to be exposed in coming years. Is higher education, is it really worth the price that Americans have paid? You know, we believe that Americans should be educated, that elite education really should be elite, that it prepares you uh, for life, it prepares you for a career and, and sometimes some very, you know, technical kind of jobs. But, you know, is it really delivering right now in the way that it was promised to us a generation ago? And I really don't think so. You know, it, it's, it's really unusual because at one point, the school, going to, to public school, the intent of it was to help prepare you for life as a viable and, and, and participating member of your society, your community, your town, your village, whatever, so that you could work, earn a living, provide for your family, and help your community grow. That's no longer the purpose. The purpose is to get the, the child out, to get the public funds in, and the more bodies you get, the more money that comes in, and the heck with what the quality of the student is. And then you push them up to the higher learning where they are ill-prepared, and then the higher learning has to do with the high school and the junior high school didn't do on educating the child, and after a while, they throw their hands up and says, well, let's put them in a program where they become, have a master's degree in classical art. Well, that's not going to get you a job that you can afford your whole own personal home, your family. No, you move back into mommy and daddy's basement, and then you're an outcast in society. It's this vicious cycle that we are seeing right now. How many kids... I can't even call them kids, young adults, you know, 30-year-olds still living in mommy's basement because they got that art degree and were not equipped to deal with the real world and get a real job. Yeah, and on top of that, they've wasted four to six years of their life and buried themselves in enormous debt. And meanwhile, our schools, which, again, continually demand, you know, more and more assistance from the American taxpayer, have used a lot of the resources that they've had over the really the decades, uh, creating massive apparatus of administration that goes beyond just the simple you know teacher student environment. I mean that's one of the big uptick in costs certainly over the last 30 years is this absolute growth in administration on on college campuses that has little to do with the actual education of, of young people 
And, and, and frankly, if that system isn't cut off, if we continue, if we accept the fact that we're going to simply bail out universities at this time, we're just feeding that system. We're not putting the pressure on them to make some fundamental changes to better serve the American public. You know, it, 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 they're feeding the beast, and there are probably a lot of higher institutions that could easily go to the wayside, and I wouldn't mourn, honestly. But the idea that every single student coming out of high school should be in college, now higher education becomes a civil right. No, it's not. Not everyone is college material. Uh, you might be better as a welder or as a plumber or as a baker, or a small business owner. You know, there are, everyone has specific, you know, unique talents, but instead of equipping people for the ability to deal with life, you know, basic English, mathematics, uh, business law, uh, you know, home skills, you know, these things are, are lacking now. They, they definitely are, and, and at this point, a lot of it has just become a checking of the box. You know, if you get a college degree, you get to check off a box as a kind of class marker instead of being what it should be, which is an actual education, something that's actually going to help you through life, whether it be something that helps you specifically in your job or helps you be an upstanding citizen, a leadership, you know, take leadership in your community or, or, or in politics and things like that. And i got to say, so many, of, even our big programs in this country, even some of our top tier ones, don't prepare young people to do that. I mean, they provide, you know, a place to stay for four years and for a lot of, you know, college students uh, to simply, I guess, you know, enjoy their time there for four years of school, but don't give them the, the things that they need uh, to produce in life and to, to get those jobs and to, uh, you know, be productive uh, citizens. And I think that that is creating a complex crisis because, you know, look, a lot of young people, I think, have also been deluded into taking that route, that four-year degree, and they, they end up at the end of it thinking, well, now I've got all this debt. I can't get a job. It's not really out there. Uh, so I'm going to go and, and work at a coffee shop, or I'm going to go work at something that I could have simply graduated straight out of high school, not paid all this money, not wasted all these years, and maybe even at this point have been in some uh, position of management uh, at, at, a, at a place instead of starting off basically at the bottom. And I think that shows the kind of multi-part crisis you know, on top of the, of the, I think, the radicalism that exists on campus that is perhaps a bigger issue for, for, for the state of the country, you know, with a lot of the wokeness and the social justice, which is produced uh, on these college campuses. Yeah. Now, well, you bring Jared, up a huge, I big think... point. Curtis, I just want to make this point. Uh, you bring up a huge point, this mob mentality, this mob rule. And as the kids are coming up through elementary through high school graduation, they're taught, they're not taught critical thinking. They're taught you mimic what I tell you, you check, as you said, all the right boxes. So by the time they do get to the college level, they're right for the further propaganda of the socialist left. And then the socialist left say, you cannot challenge me. What I say is what you have to parrot back to me. So kids want to, get along. They want to be part of a group. They want to be part of something. And what are they now a part of? This socialistic idea. And then now you see the result of it in the streets. You really do. It's, it's interesting to see that, you know, a lot of the attacks that we've seen on, you know, in Portland and elsewhere, a lot of these things are being led by college students or college graduates. I mean, uh, one of the young men who was uh, who tried to t- who led the tearing, tried to tear down statues in Washington D.C. 
was a college graduate. You had two uh, lawyers, actually, one who had gone to, I believe, Columbia, uh, Ivy League, uh, who had created a Molotov cocktail and threw it at a cop car, tried to burn a cop car. Uh, they face a long prison sentence. But, you know, these weren't people who were necessarily or were poor or anything like this. These were college-age people uh, who, in some ways, were very privileged. They had One had been privileged to get an Ivy League uh, degree, and yet they had turned to radicalism. And, and to a large extent, uh, they turned to ideas that were undermining uh, you know, law and order in this country and things like this. So I think that's a disturbing part of this trend is that you know, we see, especially a lot of, the, I think, the mob and the violence today that we're seeing in our cities is being led by a lot of college-educated people who've been radicalized by the ideas in their institutions and have, I think, in their own lives been quite aimless. I think they're looking for something to glom onto. They're looking for a movement, and now they've found that, and that ends up in a lot of destruction. Now, yeah, people talk about you. wokeness, and, and you point out in another article you wrote uh, how wokeness is a product of Marxism. What does Marxism have to do with wokeness? Because you would think under Marxism you have to lockstep in what the tyrant, the leader, thinks. How does wokeness fit in there? Yeah, I, th- I think wokeness, you know, as we call it today, and it's, you know, now become an almost ubiquitous word, I think they've glommed on to a lot of classic Marxist theories, although I think it's less uh, economically oriented than, you know, the old-fashioned Leninism and things like that. They've, they've added, I think, a lot of uh, cultural ideas. You know, society is, is racist, society is sexist, it's misogynistic, you know, you hear these things all the time. I think they've They've gone into a lot of things that were created by, there's one thinker in particular in the early 20th century, Antonio Gramsci, who said that essentially that the reason that the Marxist revolution failed is because they hadn't properly conditioned society uh, to embrace Marxist thinking. That essentially that, that old-fashioned American values and, and institutions acted as a bulwark against Marxist revolution, that you had to fundamentally change the culture to make it accept these ideas. And I think, you know, these ideas, many of them have found their ways into America's top institutions. You know, these, these ideas of justice, of wokeness and social justice, you know, they're, they're not just created in a bubble. They didn't just rise overnight. They're a product of, you know, multi-generational, especially in our higher education institutions, but now in corporate America, now in Hollywood entertainment, that have really taken hold, I think, of a lot of, I think, what you call as, as America's elite cultural influencers. And I think that's why you're getting this kind of radicalism today that I think was almost unheard of even 10 years ago. Uh, we're seeing almost overnight how the attitudes of young people has changed and our institutions have changed, and it's created a real confidence, a, a crisis. I mean, there are so many people now who believe that the United States and what it was founded on was something that was fundamentally wrong, not something that was imperfect, but based on a system that, that leads toward justice, but something that is in itself unjust, bad and rotten, and needs to be overthrown. And I think you're seeing that kind of divide now where, you know, the country is split on this. Well, you, you're right that America is on trial, that we are in a crisis. And if we're going to keep this republic, then we're going to have to push back. So how would you suggest we do that? Well, I mean, I think a big part of it really is rhetoric. It's, it's, it's pushing back when radicals demand that, you know, you change the name of this, you tear down that statue, to put, to put your foot down and to be, frankly, you know, educated in what this country is about and be unafraid 
to, to stand up to the radicals. And that, that requires our political leadership class to embrace fully the idea of law and order. You know, people should, you know, when we have mobs that are basically uh, causing chaos in our cities and doing enormous damage to, to the communities there, uh, to the businesses there, to the future prosperity of those places, uh, to put your foot down, to stand for law and order, and to be willing to defend uh, what this country was built on, you know, to defend the Constitution of the United States, the, the Declaration of Independence that really is, you know, the soul of what this country is, the, the ideas that really have made America so successful from its beginning, allowed it to uh, correct the injustices that have happened here to form a more perfect union. I mean, that's the kind of beauty of what this country is. That used to be uh, just, you know, something that was accepted by almost everybody in our political system. I mean, you could take people from the left and right. Most people accepted that. Now it has to be defended. It has to be defended vociferously. Americans it can't blink when they're now challenged. Uh, the mob is, is coming from, for everybody. Our strength comes from the fact that, you know, Americans have decided to put their foot down, say that we're not going to change based on the whims of this angry mob that's going to do violence on its own behalf. I believe... All right, so go ahead. We've got about only seven minutes left, so go ahead, Curtis. I believe we have to reclaim our educational system. I helped three friends of mine with their college-level research papers, and they are being taught all this social justice and Marxist... Um, stuff and um i mean even with the test written test they're not allowed to have an opinion because they it will say on instruction this is not an opinion based you know um essay in other words do just what we say as far as the le- the lesson um talks about but you will not express your opinions so they're being indoctrinated they're not learning they're being indoctrinated. You know, it's their point that they're trying to make, and that's it. You follow it. No comment from you. Yeah, I think that's 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 that's, that's the widespread problem that we are dealing with, and uh, that's why I believe that look, we we do need a kind of revolution in the way education is done in this country. I think we've been failed by a generation where our, our K to twelve education has often become indoctrination. Our higher education has been bad for even longer. I think that this indoctrination continues then, and I think that it's important. Again, it's one of the reasons why I support you know, things like school choice and things like homeschooling. There are materials out there. I mean, there are, I think, good materials. The Bill of Rights Institute just released some, uh, you know, materials and things that can be used for young people in their schools and homeschooling. Uh, these things are incredibly important. I mean, you know, you may not get this kind of reinforcement from your average you know, public school teacher, you have to use the, the, the mandated curriculum of the school. But you can say, hey, you know, I don't like what my student is learning there. I'm going to pull them out of school. I'm going to you know, confront the teachers and say, you know what, I'm going to find an alternative to this kind of education that is letting them down and at least teach my kids and hopefully others uh, about the truth about what, what America stands for, what their country stands for, in, in a way to prepare them uh, for their life as, as citizens of this republic. Uh, that, that, that's really the key. I mean, I, you know, some of the numbers, especially you look at, uh, there's a recent Fox News poll that showed that while most Americans, 70% say that the, the founding fathers are heroes compared to only 10% villains, when you look at the numbers for people under 45, 39% say heroes, 31% say villains, with a whole lot of other people undecided. You know, that should be something that's shocking. That should be something that, 
America see as a crisis, a crisis in how we teach young people about the founding. And I think that that it calls for a, a radical rethink of how our education system is done and how we're going to counter a lot of the ideas that unfortunately have poisoned the, the young minds of Americans. You know, there's a, there are a lot of assets out there now, and I think especially after this COVID pandemic, parents' eyes are starting to open up, and they're starting to see the reality of what, you know, the kids are going through and facing, and their loss of future potential unless they step in. So I, I see a migration away from public education, more to charter schools, private schools, and things like that, homeschooling. I, I see a lot movement towards the good, and let's just hope it's enough to turn our society around and help preserve this republic. Because, yes, our founding fathers were flawed, but you look at them at the time they were in and how they came up in life, and yet they had the ability and foresight to place mechanisms in our Constitution that would allow us to be a more better union, to form this union into a stronger one. I mean, they set the mechanisms in place for abolition that led to the Civil War, that led to freedom. And they put a lot of mechanisms in place that we can improve as we go along. It takes time, doesn't get over overnight. But what really annoys me is that when I get blamed for something, I had nothing to do in creating. I wasn't alive when slavery existed, and I probably would have been an abolitionist. But I am responsible for what I am here and now. So don't play any one of these woke titles on me, and that's my attitude, Jared. And, and it should be. I mean, especially I think I think a really disturbing thing is people making moral comparisons between the United States and, for instance, communist China, which I think is a, a major challenge to our way of life and worldview. You know, the American system, I think, the real beauty of it is the fact that I think it was built on something that was great. It was not perfect. It was in some ways flawed. It's really humanity in, in the whole world is, is very much flawed. We, we kind of see the, the imperfections and miss what I think is, has made us exceptional. It's the reason why we went from, you know, 13 colonies at the edge of the world to the world's preeminent superpower in such a short amount of time because I think this idea that, you know, the world bent towards justice, I think it's been an American thought because we do have a system that ultimately bends towards justice. We do have a system of self-government that I think is the greatest created on this earth. We have enormous potential to further and better ourselves, but not if we fundamentally overturn that system, not if we throw it out in the ideas that ultimately – you know, made it great and made it uh, what it is today. And I think that's the real challenge we have right now. We have to be fearless in defending that original idea of what this country was in the face of those, you know, postmodernists and those who, you know, the cultural Marxists, you might call them, those who wish to overturn it. And we'll throw ultimately this world into the hands of countries like communist China that oppose all these things that stand for something, I think, truly horrific. We're down to our last minute. We're down to our last minute, and this has been a blast. We have to have you come back on. So I'll talk to Tom and have you come back on and maybe spend a little more time. People can find you at heritage.org, as well as the Daily Signal, correct? That's correct. All right. Well, thank you for the hard work you do and the great articles you, you put out there. Keep up the good work, and God bless. Thank you so much. Hey, take care, Jerry. All right, Curtis. Great hey, work. Thank you. We're down to... 
down to our last few seconds of the show, Curtis. I have next week a friend of mine who's been on the show before. He's also an author. He was a college professor, also NYPD. Um, Coach Kevin Collins will be with us next week, and I'll let everyone know what else is lined up. But to remind the listeners, we now start at 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Until then, I say good night and God bless.